Um, all right, we're live. We are back. Um, as of today, I've came up with a name for this podcast. We're going to call it, I believe it's the Think Tank. That's uh, definitely not settled yet, but you know, if you have a better idea, let me know. I'm here today with Johnny Molina. He went to high school with me at Sage Creek. He went to Western Washington University for one year, went to Miracosta Community College for one year, got all A's, 4.0 GPA, and transferred to Berkeley, so congrats on that, first of all. Uh, thank you. How are you settling in up there? It's good. It's been pretty nice. Uh, was it at the end of week three now? Okay. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful area, so it's been a good start. Awesome. What, um, so what classes are you looking at right now? So I have, so I'm doing a political science major, so I have two upper division poli-sci classes, one on war, and one on the politics of Southeast Asia, and then uh, I have a history class on Brazil, and an ethnic studies class on the southern borders, so yeah. Okay, that's cool. So I'm going to put you on the spot with the type of question I hate to get, but I'm going to give it anyway. What's, um, you have a most interesting thing you've learned from those classes, like something you really took away so far? Hmm. Most interesting thing up there. So I would say that uh, the politics of Southeast Asia is an extremely interesting class. And the uh, most interesting thing we've learned so far is the, about the Spratly Islands dispute. Um, do you know anything about that? Nothing. So south of China, you have the South China Sea, or so it's called. Okay. But um, basically under international law, you know, um, China only has a claim to a certain amount of that sea, um, because the sea is connected with, like, it, it goes, like, around the Philippines, Vietnam, you know, uh, Malaysia is also there, um, okay. so anyway, so China only, you know, it's when the water is in the same territory as all those countries, each of those individual countries has a claim to it, but China is just like, ah, fuck that, we're just gonna claim to it all, and so they do these wild things, um, to lay claims on it. So what they're doing is they're building these artificial islands and then mm. having people live there and being like, yo, this is our territory. Look, we have people living there. So, And then on the Philippine side, to wrap this up, they like there's a, been a sunken ship there for like years and years and years. They put people on that sunken ship and like, look, this is our land because we have people living there. It all has to do with like some weird, obscure clause in, in international... I mean, yeah, it's extremely complicated, but... I will say that it basically just highlights how strange geopolitics can get when you start putting people on boats and being like, look, they're living here now, so it's our territory. So that's, yeah, the strangest of it all is what I'd like to highlight. I don't know much to say about that other than that's just, that's just crazy. I know China's always an interesting subject because they're, as a country, on the rise and they're doing a lot to try to like... I don't. I don't want to. I don't know if they're trying to threaten us. I don't think I know enough to say that. But they're definitely doing things that threaten, you know, other established powers right now. So that's always an interesting subject. And yeah, I mean, as the United States is closing off, at least under this administration, to you know, uh, international treaties and, and allies, you kind of see China expanding their their scope and uh, in terms of international influence. So uh, yes, I. I worry a lot about us closing off our closest allies and aligning ourselves with countries that are might have incentive structures that don't really match what we want to do as a nation, you know, like. Yeah, so basically, like, in this whole, you know, it's probably out of this view, under the Obama administration, you know, uh, they kind of, 
they kind of pivoted themselves towards Southeast Asia. You know, Southeast Asia is kind of like Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, and then you also got like Cambodia, Laos, you know, Thailand, uh, you know, several others. Um, so anyway, so the Obama administration was not necessarily like backing the Southeast Asian countries with like force, but like just kind of like a understanding that if China did anything crazy, the U.S. would be in support of the Southeast Asian nations for several reasons. But anyway, so the Trump administration basically hasn't done anything. They're just like, I don't really care. So it's pretty classic from them. So China's just been able to do what they want in the last few years. And, uh, you know, in terms of international law, like you can have a ruling on it, which there was by the U.N., but unless there's reason for enforcement or compliance nothing's going to happen to stop China. So there's a lot of reasons that why there could be enforcement and compliance, even though China's military is way stronger than like the Philippines or Vietnam's. But that's complicated politics stuff. You don't need to get into that, I guess. Well, I, like, I'm kind of interested. So what I would say, my thought on that is like, how do you reconcile the fact that we're supposedly putting a lot of pressure on China with the trade war and coming at them in that direction, but then we're easing up as they try to take influence of like countries nearby as they try to like gain power that way? Yeah, it's just confused and not rational. I mean, this is just classic from the Trump administration. I okay, mean, yeah. You see that all over. Like, I would be Absolutely. The, the migrant crisis, he's like, oh, we're going to cut, you know, foreign aid into these Central American countries, and then that's somehow supposed to, like, make them want to be better. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's just literally not logical to be going into this crazy trade war that has a lot of terrible ramifications for you know, small-time farmers in the United States, which, you know, President Trump is like, oh, yeah, we, we, we love those guys. Like, you know, he doesn't care. Right. But um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, you're completely right in that analysis. Like, okay. the trade war coupled with a non-existent presence in South in that South China Sea area, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that seems like a like an inconsistency. Um, in terms of the trade war, to kind of, I mean, to kind of play devil's advocate here, do you think that there's like some rationality behind it in terms of like securing intellectual property from American companies within China? Or is that is that just kind of a talking point type of thing? Um, honestly, I, I wouldn't know enough to say. That's I mean, fair, yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of um, Democratic candidates say they, they'll use the existing – uh, high tariffs on China as like leverage for other things, so they want to just like uh, do away with them uh, right away. Okay. And, uh, so that could, you know, imply that there's some sort of disadvantage that China has. But the thing about the United States, you know, just the way the government structure compared to the way that China's government structure, which is important, is that you know the United States trouble through administrations every four or eight years, whereas China they have like thirty year plans. So for yeah. China. It doesn't really, the trade war doesn't really, I mean, in the short term it matters, but they, all they have to do is just wait it out until... We change our mind. Yeah, exactly, until the next president with a completely different ideology comes in. So, you know, that's another reason why China is just going to be, I mean, it has been, you know, in, improving their international standing, especially compared to the U.S., and why I think they'll continue to do so, is that they have the luxury of having, you know, whether it's moral or not, I mean... United States isn't that moral either, but anyway, they do have the luxury of yep. having a like long-term plan, so, um, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think, I think you said something interesting in there that 
I agree with, but a lot of listeners might have heard it and been like, oh, wait, what? And basically just talking that you don't think that the United States is really that moral. And um, I, I have a couple talking points on that, but I'm interested to see, like, what are the first things that come to your mind when you say that? Yeah, um, so when you look at China, you know, there's been this kind of finding in the news recently. I don't know how many, how many people know about this, but anyway, in like Eastern China, like we've found these Muslim re-education camps, basically, and you know the Chinese government were keeping these secret, and they only became like known to the international public through like satellite imagery. They're like, "What the fuck is that?" So they they checked it out, and so basically, China is taking these, you know ethnic minorities in their country um, who believe in Islam and they're bringing them these to these re-education camps and uh, yeah it's basically like internment camps where they're trying to basically get rid of Islam <laughs> in their country so obviously that's extreme human rights violations yes. so to look at that and be like wow China is terrible they really fucked up and that's all true but um, I, there's a very similar parallel um which isn't so well hard to find in the you know the child separation uh, camps oh, okay. on the southern yeah. border currently. Um, I mean, you could obviously go back in history and be like, "Oh, Japanese internment, yeah, that's very true as well." But uh, just right now, today, uh, yeah, today, you know, and it's very secret too. Uh, it's very hard for journalists to get in and see the conditions, and um, so yeah, it's government secrecy. It's internment camps. It's trying to take people of minority um, backgrounds and, you know, extremely marginalized them. And it's terrible. It's huge human rights violations done by the U.S. government. And they've been keeping, you know, the conditions uh, less than, like, transparent. So, I mean, there's an example where, you know, people are always like, oh, China's terrible. I'm like, yeah. It no, what's really going on here? Who, who said the United States has some sort of, like, moral authority to say it? Like, it's just ridiculous to think that the United States is somehow moral. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. A lot of people like to take the moral high ground and, and act like that's a thing. And it's like, well, you gotta be more partial, not really look at everything that's going on. Um, yeah. American exceptionalism is just a thread that's run throughout this country's doctrine. And, uh, I, I mean, I find it appalling, but hmm. I did, I could go to so many different examples, but, uh, yeah, yeah. um, this is certainly one of them. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the one that's really obvious that always stands out to me is that, like, when you try to pull the moral high ground, uh, I, I always wor worry about um, nuclear and atomic bombs and that kind of thing, and um, they've existed, help me out here, they've existed for how long now? Like, 60 years, do you know? Well, it was World War No, longer, two. so, like, 75, 80 years. Oh, yeah, from 1945 to... What are, what are 2019? That's a long time. It's a long time. Uh, less than 100 years. Okay, less than 100 years, but a, but a relatively long time. And I, I always feel like that's one of the biggest existential threats for humanity. And it's like, you look at it, and the only country to like use one of these weapons of mass destruction is us, and we dropped it on a city in Japan and wiped out women and children. And I think just right, right off the bat, any moral high ground that we wanted to claim we had is gone because in my opinion there's no way to justify that zero yeah we did it twice uh it's wild yeah um i, I agree and you know an interesting note that i always love to bring up because like i learned this in some history classes that um 
during the Manhattan Project when they were kind of constructing this uh, nuclear arsenal, I guess. Um, the president of the United States at the time knew about it, but the vice president, who was Truman, he didn't. He had no idea. So when Truman became president, the intelligence and military officials were like, hey, yo, by the way, we have this extremely, extremely world-changing, deadly weapon. And Truman's like, oh, wow, that's good to know. Thanks, guys. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the amount of secrecy. I mean, it's obviously like they had to have the secrecy, you know, even though Russia was apparently able to back-engineer it. But um, it just highlights the uh, yeah, level of secrecy the government has um, in these very immoral kind of... But again, like, they had to build it, I guess, because, like, if it's... If it can be built, it will be built somewhere oh. or the other. So, but, and then, yeah, but obviously, then Truman figured out and he decided it was the best course to use it. And yeah, just decimated, decimated two cities. So, it, it, not just two cities, like an entire country. I mean, yeah, it's fucking it, insane. I, I could go into the politics of that, how, you know, Japan was being very imperialistic and aggressive. The United States just kind of fucked them over and then they built them up in their image because they needed some sort of capitalist presence in the east where you had Russia and China so you know it, was, it wasn't you know it was part of a grand strategy hmm. for sure so you, you um, do you think you think you think there was more of a strategic play there than just ending a war oh yeah yeah definitely I mean Japan was now the I mean now Korea is you know South Korea at least yeah, yeah. Uh, it's coming up as a, kind of like the second form of Japan on, the, on East Asia, but uh, Japan was so aggressive and hostile at that time, and that whole region was like, uh, you know, China and Russia, like I said, but also Vietnam and uh, the Korean Peninsula, you know, battling these communist ideologies. Japan was really the only option, in, I think, in the United States' mind to build a capitalist powerhouse in uh, East Asia. So they, they decimated Japan, and then they basically wrote them Japan a new constitution, and in that new constitution, they completely demilitarized Japan. So Japan doesn't have a military anymore because of the United States. And the United States basically wrote the Japanese constitution for them, and they're like, here, we're going to give you a bunch of economic advantages. You're going to be our biggest trading partner for the next several decades, and we're going to invest heavily into your, into your businesses. And all of a sudden, Japan becomes this huge, major exporting economy despite the fact that they have very little natural resources and very small um but thanks to the united states and their geopolitical needs um japan is now an economic powerhouse and we've been you know other countries since but uh yeah so certainly coming out of world war ii like uh united states wasn't just trying to end the war i mean that's certainly obviously that was their goal but their end goal was to create in East Asia that better suited the United States interests. And you see this everywhere. I mean, yeah. that we can go into Latin America too. Um, but yeah, I could go on. But I, I, very, yeah, yeah, I think the more I hear about this kind of stuff, the more I feel that like a lot of the moves we make, you know, geopolitically speaking, we give a rationalization to the American people and to whoever's listening. But like, it's a chess game. Like, there's a whole bunch of shit working behind the scenes that we don't even know about, and it's... Oh, yeah. No, it's extremely scary. The scariest thing for me um, is that these, there's military officials, high-ranking military officials, and high-ranking intelligence officials that have those positions of power for life, and no one knows who they are in the general public, and they're not elected. And 
our congressional leaders and our president are, you know, term limited uh, officials. So they're there. I mean, in Congress, it's kind of fucked up now since there's politicians for life, which should change. Um, there should be term limits for Congress. But anyway, that's a different story. But uh, Congress doesn't really know much of anything anyway. They don't, they don't do much other than make laws. But anyway, the point is, at least the president and his, and his uh, you know, the cabinet that he nominates, they're, they're there for term limits. Whereas these intelligence officials and military officials have these very, very high uh, positions of power and privy where they're not elected and no one knows anything about them. So they hold, you know, the Manhattan Project kind of exemplified this. They hold enormous power and influence that someone like the vice president in Truman's case may not even know of. So that's just the way the government's structured. It's just extremely scary. For me. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So that, okay. So yeah, I've, I've been thinking more about the deep state lately and like things that might be covered up and, um, especially I, I've been watching more of the conspiracy videos, not as much lately, but more in the past, <laughs> you, you know, about that, like the alien stuff, which is, oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear what you think about Epstein, but, but yeah, side note, anyone listening unacknowledged on Netflix, really interesting alien documentary. Um, but I, I go there because now I'm curious, like, obviously you don't have like a firm answer here, but how much, how much of the government do you think is ran by these faceless members of the deep state who aren't elected and, and serve for life as opposed to the people in Congress and the president and, you know, other elected officials? I mean, I think it's a great deal. Why is the military budget every single presidency, like $750 billion? And so there's no accountability there's no no one really knows where so much of that money is going and uh yeah simple things like that um that just never change um i think i think a good you know it's impossible to say obviously and it's just like no mainstream media covers this kind of stuff so you're just kind of left in the dark as an average citizen but um it uh if you, if you listen to Tulsi Gabbard she's a presidential candidate she went on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast a very Leo likes her. What's up? Leo Leo wanted her to come out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, no, I love Tulsi Gabbard too. I'm a big I'm a big supporter of hers. Um, so anyway, she speaks so eloquently on this subject. Um, she's very anti-war, and uh, she has huge concerns about you know the military, or, you know the military industrial complex, whatever it's referred to as. But um, yeah, I mean it's scary for me because I think. Yeah, if, if anyone's interested in this concept, you can just watch, uh, I think Tulsi Gabbard did two podcasts, long, you know, like long format, like two hours or so with Rogan. I think it was the second podcast that she really talked about this in depth, but uh, yeah, it's concerning to say the least. Very. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Did you, um, I'm sure you've probably watched the debates more than me. Like maybe 45 minutes at the beginning, I kind of tapped out. Like, yeah, they're just good. such a joke now. Dude, like, it's so painful. Um, like, I was even going just to watch, like, just for fun. I was like, I'm just gonna try to like have some fun, make fun of some people. I just kind of do it. I was just like, this is just so terrible. It's so bad. It's so bad. I will say, like, don't vote for entertainment purposes, but if you did, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump would be a fucking shit show. Like, it would be very fun. Yeah. But I mean, but with, with Tulsi Gabbard, she, um, did you see her criticism on Kamala Harris um, a couple debates ago? 
Yeah, when she was talking about Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor. Yes, I that made me so mad at Kamala Harris. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Okay. Um, I don't have a very high opinion of Kamala Harris. I think uh, she's yeah. politics in the worst sense of the word. Yes, she changes her viewpoints constantly to f- figure out what's in the trend. You know, she she is so fake. You can just so tell. That's funny. That's exactly that's exactly my read. Exactly. That's just so hard to watch. It is. And she has a very dark record as a prosecutor. I mean, it's just she it kind of just highlights this kind of power hungry nature and she'll say she'll do things and and she just when she has the position of power to do so she'll just use that position of power for greed and self-interest you know she got to the senate that way yeah she's running for president that way and if you believe her and thinking that she's gonna do any of the things any of the progressive things that she says she will then i suggest looking at your track record as a prosecutor and see what she actually did when she had yeah. Act change, and that's kind of what, that's exactly what Tulsi Gabbard was talking about. I mean, yeah. she certainly painted a very dark. Like that one, I remember that one sentence where she was like, uh, when Gabbard was talking to Paul Harris, saying like, uh, "You put people in prison for you know marijuana violations, and then when you're asked if you ever smoked marijuana yourself, like she laughed like that. It's just, and you know, you I looked up like some sort of uh, you know fact checkers mm-hmm. articles on that to make sure like these claims are accurate, and yeah, they it was, are. And I think I think what makes that even worse is that a, a large part of especially in the first debate, which I watched a lot of the first two, in the first debate, Kamala Harris really went at Joe Biden about his record on busing and you know, not not getting black children to the proper schools and not supporting that. Um, which is fine. I that, that seems like a reasonable criticism, but then when you think about how racially biased drug um, arrests are and then you hear her talking about like on Twitter about how proud she is of arresting people for marijuana it's like I would I would bet that that disproportionately affected the black community over other communities so then for her to flip around and also take the side of like well Joe Biden like you didn't do enough for the African-American communities that I'm a part of well just just the hypocrisy in that is yeah, she's been she's been a net negative. Like Joe, as far as I know, it sounded like Joe kind of just went with the flow and didn't make a scene over something. Which, you know, if I don't know much about it, if it was the wrong decision, then shame on him. I don't I don't know. But all I know is that man, that just made me mad because she's so full of shit. Like that's really the only way to put it. She's just full yeah. of shit. I mean, I don't have a very high opinion of Joe Biden either. I don't, I don't either. Yeah, I don't think. He's- terrible but I, he certainly right, anyway right. i could get into more of that later actually i'll probably touch on it in a few seconds but um what was i gonna say about Kamala harris uh, yeah it's just kind of another example of just, just being a politician in the, worst, in the worst of ways but um oh yeah if you look at i mean if you look at the black vote like who blacks you know people are supporting uh biden in a landslide it's like 40 percent biden Kamala mm. harris like five percent of the black vote that's um, interesting. I think a lot of that just has to do with name recognition, you know, just like because mm-hmm. Biden was tied with Obama, and uh, but it's true. I mean, Biden just crushes everyone in terms of the black vote. That's uh, crazy. I mean, the only reason I can think of that Biden would still be leading the polls is, like you said, name recognition. I, yeah, I, I, he's actually not. I mean, like he he is technically, but when you consider Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're so similar um, policy wise. When one of them decides to, you know, 
drop if you add Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers together and every poll they, they beat Biden. Biden won't be the nomination for that reason. Interesting. You know, it's funny because they have they have really similar policy, but I always wonder how much people vote, vote on personality as opposed to policy. And um, just listening to them talk, even though they have a lot of the same thoughts, they seem like really different people. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I can get it. I was talking to someone the other day who's like, I, I support Warren over Sanders because I think she's more electable because uh, Sanders openly calls himself like a democratic socialist, whereas Warren always says, I'm a capitalist. Like, don't ever not call me capitalist. Like, she's so, he's like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, the country will like that. So I'm going to support more and understand this. And it's like, okay, fair enough. But, sure. um, yeah, and I mean, that's a reason. But also Sanders does lead more in, like, in, in certain polls that have, like, uh, certain candidates against Donald Trump. Um, if, like, a certain candidate came out of the primary to face Donald Trump, Sanders usually has a higher margin uh, over Trump than, than Warren does. So, hmm. I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to decide between those two based on who they think has the best chance to, to beat Donald Trump. But in terms of personality, I guess Bernie Sanders always comes across as, like, more angry. <laughs> yeah, that's facts. Uh, Warren seems to be more, like, positive, I guess. Whereas Sanders is like, ah, oh, everything sucks. Like, you know, I, yeah, it's I true. Know. It's true. I, I feel that a lot. That's pretty much what I was thinking. Yeah, so I guess I could see a lot of people supporting Warren for a positive outlook, but I could see a lot of people supporting Bernie for, like, being so vocal for, like, ever about this. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I kind of respect the fact that, like, he, he's, got, he's got balls. Like, I don't know another way to put okay. it. Like, he'll speak what the fuck's on his mind. Like, Yeah, no, I mean, I have a high opinion of them both, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I appreciate most of their policies and... But even their personality both, I have a high opinion of. I mean, the one thing about Warren, though, is that weird... Did you hear about the weird Native American thing? Nothing, no. I, I, it's so strange. Um, so Elizabeth Warren said she was, like, had Native American heritage for some sort of... I think it's either getting into school or getting a job or something. But or when she got, like, her DNA test or whatever, she had, like, 116th, like, Native American heritage. So it's just, like... But someone was, I mean, I know she came from a poor economic background, so there's that. But still, I mean, for someone who has some level of white privilege to try to get the same benefits given to a Native American, I mean, the United ah. States, I mean, or the British colonizers, I mean, they literally committed genocide on, on the Natives. Or, so for someone to think that they are somehow entitled to something, Anything because of one sixteenth, yeah, of that heritage, you know, and most likely that one sixteenth came from like, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it's most yeah, likely. Right. So it's just. Yeah. But I, I want to play, I want to play devil's advocate here. Um, so, she is Native American, right? Like, technically speaking, yeah. I'll look it up real quick. Okay. Like maybe. 160. I don't know. Look it up. I don't know. I think, I think this is something we both agree on. I'm going to pivot here. It's like, I think it's just a bad system that we award, um, you know, we kind of counter-adjust based off of race. I think it makes a lot more sense to do it off of, you know, income. Because... I do agree to a large extent. I will say, though, that people just have implicit bias against 
certain yeah, they have those implicit bias against people who appear or have different cultures than them. So I think that there is an, like regardless of economic status, I think a lot of people, like let's say white people, have a high degree of implicit bias against someone who's Native American and practices, you know, certain Native American cultural things. So I think that provides an irrational an irrational barrier to the success of said person. So ideally, I think there should be some sort of measure to account for that. But I do think overall, like, yeah, I mean, the goal is to give as much equal equality of opportunity. Sorry about that audio cut out. Um, So Johnny, continue with what you were saying. We were kind of talking about affirmative action. Yeah, so I kind of mentioned about I think there's implicit bias against uh, people of other backgrounds. You know, the United States is primarily white, so those people of other backgrounds, you know, will be you know blacks, natives, Hispanics, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's all based off like social stereotypes. So like, yeah, someone may not necessarily have a. Yeah, I don't know. I guess um, I think that's that's the point. Is that there should yeah. be some sort of counterbalance to that irrational barrier that they face. But I, I'm going back to the whole economic thing. I think it's very true that, you know, um, why would you give the same benefits to an upper middle class black person as you give, as you would to like a uh, black person from inner city, you know, Detroit or something like that. Right. You know, clearly those um, people in inner city, inner city Detroit need that sort of uh, impetus or potential impetus more because of all the you know I, I mean I think we both agree that you know where you're born has a significant influence on uh, what you're what you're able to achieve and yeah, so you want to you want to put in structures to allow for the most talent possible to be captured you know there's just so much creativity and talent that is lost when we spend so much money on military operations, but forget about so many communities that could, uh, you know, just use an equal, closer to equal plane. Yeah, not even, not even equal. It's never going to be equal, but like some attempt at making it close to equal, you know? You know, something. Because like if I, if I was, you know, born in inner city Baltimore, I certainly wouldn't be at a, you know, a very good school. Um, I don't, like if I, this is another thing. So like, kind of pivoting to experiences I've had. So I, I did a little bit of volunteering at uh, Christian McCullough Elementary School, which is in Oceanside. And uh, it was like a fifth grade class, just, you know, teaching some reading and writing because I think that reading and writing is very important. So anyway, about, I'd say about 70% of these kids, their first language was Spanish. And the teacher only spoke English. And I was like, how could this be? And, you know, these kids that were struggling were telling me, it's like, well, I go home and I ask my parents for help with my reading and writing homework, and they can't help. Right. I got so much help from my parents. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. They read so much to me. They, yes. you know, my mom was an English teacher, so she taught me so much about writing and reading and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, if I didn't have that, I would not be successful in school at all. Right. So it's just like, it's so sad and depressing for me to. Look at this elementary school with like 70% of the class, their first language is Spanish. 
basically, basically to, to resolve this, I think that, uh, border, border states need to invest more into education. And like, I think Spanish should just basically be taught just like English in schools. Mm-hmm. I, I think it should be a bilingual, I think it should be a bilingual, California should be a bilingual state. Uh, it has to be. And you could do it. I mean, you could just, all you need to do is invest money into creating Spanish programs. Um, you know, sure, that may, may cost some extra tax dollars. Maybe we have to decrease, like, the military budget. But, like, I, I think it's worth it because there's so much talent that's lost. And, so know, so what, do you, what do you say to the people who either don't recognize the advantages that structurally come from being, you know, in, in good, like, I guess I can only speak for myself and people like me, I guess I'll say, but like people who come from upper, upper middle class white families, you know, good economic situation. Like, what do you say to the people like that who either don't have an awareness of how good they had it and how much of a boost that gave them or who like even know it, but still don't think it's worth the taxpayer dollars to try to help other people? Oof. I would say a couple things. I'd say one, um, travel around like if you yeah. have an opinion on a policy, just go to some communities where that policy has an effect. You know, like if you have an opinion on not wanting to spend the money to have enough judges um, on the southern border to uh, you know hear all these um, asylum cases in a timely manner, then like well maybe you just go check it out. Like go to those cages and maybe even go to you know, just just travel around and see if you have if you have an opinion on a policy. Yeah, you I know, would I would argue that you should go s- try to see in person the uh, effects of your opinions. Um, that's one. I think um, two. Maybe just try to think about all the benefits you've had growing up and imagine if they're stripped, and try to think of where you'd be in life then. And I just want to jump in. There's, it, it gives you a lot of perspective to understand like what's been really good in your life, but like beyond perspective, it's from from a selfish point of view too. It's really good for you. Like gratitude's a good feeling, and um, if you have something to be grateful for, you should be. So if you are listening to this, and I know I'm blasting this out on my Instagram, trying to get some of my friends on there to uh, go and listen, understand that being raised in Carlsbad, no matter what struggles you've dealt with, is something you need to be massively grateful for because it's it's hard to get a better upbringing than that like in terms of globally speaking this is easily the top 0.5 maybe even 0.05 percent of the world in terms of living conditions and in anything like that so definitely even if you're not going to shift your perspective on other things which I, i would hope you would i think that's part of the point of this podcast is to give new perspective but at least, at least feel that gratitude, you know? Yeah, I appreciate that statement. Um, you still there? I'm still there, yep. Okay, sorry, I just didn't hear the static. Yeah, yeah. The, the, sound, the sound quality's a bit better than it was at first. I'm, uh, I'm glad it didn't stay all staticky like when you first picked it up. So that's good. That's good. Um, what was I going to say? I was, yeah, yeah. Um, being grateful for what you have is such a good feeling and you know ideally i would hope that people have that drive to kind of want to spread that feeling you know there's you know a lot of a lot of you know really you have like the impending environmental crisis you have an extreme economic 
inequality, you have these wars that last forever with just unthinkable tragedies. Yeah, you know, in, in your community, you know, at least in where we're from, it's just, you can go to the beach. Crazy. <laughs> you know, you have great school systems. Um, you know, if you, if you go, if you just, all you have to do is like go down from Mexico for a little bit and you just see, you know, they have wealth inequality that's even worse than, than here, tragically. Um, I mean, you have a lot to be grateful for, but it feels good Absolutely. to extend that. It feels good to extend that, you know, use your privilege, use your platforms of privilege to impact change. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And the other thing that's interesting too is like, spreading positivity and making other people feel good is like it it comes back like it's not even it sounds like i'm talking about karma but i'm not i'm talking about like a practical application of it like physically when you help somebody else out or spread positivity or like anything of that nature it literally makes you feel better like it, it's a gnarly thing and it's like yeah i felt it myself like even when i treat yeah. random people like today like just some random like the some a maintenance worker came in, he wanted to check my faucets and just like, I don't know, for some reason I listened to like a podcast and I was feeling especially good or whatever and I, I just, yeah. just wanted to crack up a conversation just because I was like so moved by the nice podcast and uh, we had a good conversation and you know, after it left, I was like, I never do that. I never take my time to talk to, you know, like a maintenance worker but I learned a lot of things and <laughs> I felt pretty good about it. So yeah, um, yeah I, I don't know, it's just those kind of things, they're real. Yes. I mean, that's, so that's part of the motivation for this podcast is like, I was talking about yesterday, like every person, I don't know if this is true for other people. Again, I can only speak for myself, but every person that I listen to, I usually, especially if I value their opinion and their thought process, but I'll take little bits and pieces of what they think and internalize it. And it becomes part of my thinking. And like, just, just getting as many perspectives as possible into your head is just, such a valuable thing. Yeah, but. this is something I actually learned from Armand, uh, good old Armand Amin. He'll be, be on this podcast. Yeah, he'd be fantastic for this. Um, uh, we'll just argue the whole time. It'll be very fun. Well, I, I would suggest maybe for like so. Also, in addition, just kind of see what he thinks about see what he will see what he thinks about uh, being social because Armand's had a had a very unique. Yeah. I will definitely. And he has so much. He has so much to share on that subject. Yeah, one of one of the places. You'll find a lot of common ground there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. One of the places I want to go with him is like, I mean, that dude used to give a lot of fucks about what other people thought, and now he gives no fucks. So that'll definitely be an interesting conversation for when I get him on here. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I'll let, I'll let him speak for himself. But, right. Uh, that's my vibe. He has a, he has a very uh, eloquent way of using words at times. He's very good at arguing for anything. So Yeah, it's true. He, he speaks on this concept well. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What were we talking about before then? I don't know. We, we, you kind of took a little little side drag. I have no idea where we were at. Uh, oh, yeah, what I learned from Armand. Um, oh, okay, okay. Just, just the idea that, you know, you're not going to be able to change the world with steps to figure out what to do next and 
something I, I guess I learned from there was just kind of like talking to people kind of uh, introduced me to different ways of thinking, um, different ways of being. And then Armand kind of drove that home was saying like he's learned, you know, each, each person has their own perspective on life. Because, you know, if you think a person is made up, as I think we do, like it's just kind of biological material and events that happen to them. Yep. Everyone, everyone is going to be unique and have a somewhat unique perspective on the world. But they also talk to other, you know, they build networking, they branch with people. So if you're talking to someone who lived in like Boston, but then moved to California, all of a sudden you get this whole new section of all the people they met in Boston that you never would have had contact with initially. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. So it's just, um, I think, really powerful because I think everyone has useful information that you can internalize and find value from. So. Yeah, I would say even even the people you just blatantly disagree with, it's like I think it's really valuable to like understand what they believe and why, you know? Yeah. I don't wanna name any names, I guess, the people I genuinely disagree with, but I will say I feel the same way. Like yeah. I get I get positive things from them. You know, okay, so like one of my strongest mentors I think in, in life was my uh he was a pitching coach. Um, he was independent of Sage Creek, so he's kind of independent pitching coach. Um, Leo also worked out with him. Bryce also worked out with him. So oh, okay, that guy, yeah. Coach D. Um, I worked out with him for about three years, and it was so basically I started. So I broke my elbow like coming into high school, and like I had to do rehab. So I met him at the beginning of high school. So I guess I worked with him for four years, all of high school, okay. and uh, had several other injuries. But anyway, so this is a guy. I'm not very religious. I don't really like religion. Um, but he's, he's religious, you know, and he's conservative actually. Um, so a lot right off the bat that like maybe I would disagree with, but the way I watched him like interact with the people around him, it taught me so much about how to be like respectful to other people, I guess. Hmm. And also, you know, some, you know, we're, we're training. So it's, it taught me a lot about, you know, discipline, hard work. And like, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't be as good at school as I am now. If it wasn't for those experiences, you know, the way that, you know, he, he, he made me train and like the way he'd say hi to the mailman every day, you know, and like, uh, so even, even someone like that, who's very different from me in terms of like religious views, political views, and even some social views, you know, um, still found, he's, a, he's an incredibly strong mentor for me. So yeah, it's just, it exemplifies that point, I think. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, on on the path of baseball, you still follow anything at all? You um, think about? Uh, I mean, so basically, I just kind of follow the, the Padres, the New Padres, just because my family does it gives us something to talk about. But, okay, that's cool. But not really much anymore. I guess you know we talk about it sometimes because we're we're in, we're in high school. We go for kind of baseball nerds. Big baseball but, nerd. That went away, but. Yeah, yeah big time. I'm not really anymore. Um, but I, I still do follow Padres, like I said. But anyway, I, I definitely felt like it was the kind of way to express some sort of analytical creativity. I feel like that kind of concept's kind of hard sometimes. But uh, nowadays, that's that kind of same sort of desire to express analytical creativity is kind of consumed by world events and like school and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, that is funny. Um, I, I wasn't even thinking about going this direction, but yeah, it's because just a little little background for listeners. We played fantasy baseball and 
you know, it's all based off numbers and statistics and whatnot. And I spent a lot of time, I think we both did, but again, I'll speak for myself. I spent a lot of time deep diving into the numbers there and it was a really good analytical outlet. And I think in a lot of ways it formed the way I think, which is kind of insane. But the one lesson I learned really strongly that humans like naturally don't understand is like the importance of sample size because in baseball, in baseball, one of the worst teams in the league can have an amazing 30 game stretch. And in baseball, the worst player in the MLB can be amazing for 30 games. Like it's, it's kind of just a, a crazy place where like sample, the, the correct sample size to evaluate something is so large that you just have to kind of think about everything differently. And I think I've applied that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I've learned so much from, like, eighth grade, like, reading fucking Fangraphs, which is a baseball website. I think what I learned most was the importance of thinking critically and thinking independently. Because in baseball, these old, there's these antiquated statistics that measure a player's performance. I mean... Uh, I don't know how detailed I can talk about this because not many people know what the fuck. <laughs> yeah, honestly. But um, basically, baseball is kind of like uh, player evaluation was controlled by these statistics that have been around for 100 years, and it's pretty obvious that they don't capture a true player's value. But for whatever reason, a ton of people still, still rely on these statistics. So anyway, so this kind of different train of thinking towards baseball that was given by like, websites like Fangraphs showed these, like, wait... It went so much further in like deep statistical analysis to find, mm-hmm. you know, truth, real meaning through statistics, and I, I gravitated toward that. And I always had fun being like making these weird outlandish statements, like "Oh, clutch doesn't exist," and people would be like, "What?" Which, by the way, I agreed so, with you at a time, and I fully don't know for what it's worth. We, what's that? As far as as far as clutch goes, like um the thought that your performance changes in big, big situations, depending on your personality. I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. I don't know how quantifiable, quantifiable it is because the sample size is naturally going to be really small for moments that would fall under that category. But I think I believe a lot more in the mental side of sports and life than I did back then. Yeah. To be honest, I, I do actually think I was probably wrong then, but it just yeah. kind of gave me some sort of, appreciation for being able to have an opinion based on certain evidence and you know it turns out that i, I do kind of agree with you it's I, I don't think there's really any evidence to be able to because of sample sizes you can't really right sample size kind of fucks the whole thing up from a numbers perspective but i do think that there is a certain level of focus that's gained in intense situations and you know you, there's biological stuff that that happens and you become more tense or become less tense and you, you know so I, I do think that whether it's measurable and whether you can really find a person who's clutch and say you're clutch, I don't know. I think it's I, I think that's hard. <laughs> hard to, I agree with that. Yeah, hundred percent. It's hard to identify who's clutch and who's not, but I think it's very possible for people to be more biologically able to be do perform well in, in stressful situations. Right. Um, have you ever read the book Moneyball? Yeah, I read it um, way back in eighth grade. So. Yeah, way back. I think I think that's interesting. I would recommend anyone on here who like you don't have to like or even love baseball, just like have like the smallest amount of awareness of what happens on a baseball field and not completely hate it. Like if you fall in that category or better towards baseball, you should read the book. Just because like I, I 
very much believe that people over rely on conventional wisdom as opposed to coming up with their own opinions. And I think that book like just goes into detail about all the ways that like, I mean, baseball's been around for over a hundred years and there were all these opinions on how you should evaluate players and how you should build your teams. And like, they were all so inaccurate and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And to be honest, which is like really wild when I think of just like myself and how that kind of time in my life shaped me. I think there was a pretty direct correlation with, you know, I told you I was raised Catholic. Right. There's a correlation with me starting to dive into that baseball nerd phase and me moving away from religion. And I think it was the same kind of mental uh, applications <laughs> that I used. Yeah. You know, kind of this strong rejection. I mean, I, I listened to your podcast last night. We are, I don't know who listened to both, but um, the, the, the conversation about groupthink and, you know, um, I find when I'm like alone, like separated from other people, that's when I think my best thoughts, my best opinions, my best arguments come to fruition. Hundred percent. And it's this... never when I'm around people, because when I'm around people, my judgment's clouded. You know. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's kind of cool because you get to talk to people, and you know, you don't have you get to take little bits and pieces from them, and then when you think about things on your own, that's when you really can internalize it and and adjust. And like, exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think that's a big reason why like, I'm so happy I'm introverted is because like, if I go, if I'm around a bunch of people for a little while and have conversations, like I need to go be by myself so I can just kind of like think about what happened, like what can I draw from all of this, like all that kind of stuff. I can't, I can't keep surrounding myself with people because I never have that breathing room to be able to think critically about anything. So. I know everyone's different. I'd be fascinated to talk with like an extrovert to see how they approach all that. Yeah, you know, I I try to put a label on myself a lot. I'm not sure where I fall. And it's, it's almost like, I talked about this yesterday too. I, I think people people's personalities shift from like even a week to week or a day to day or a month to month basis way more than people realize. And like yeah. I would I would bet that you're, you would say that you're more extroverted now than you were four years ago, right? Um, no? Uh, I honestly, it may, it obviously would appear that way. It would appear that way. But well, let's, let's define extrovert real quick. I'm, I'm just going to read the definition off because I think I know where you're going with this. You're not talking about it as like sociability. You're talking more about like the... Uh, the one definition Where you I, get energy from. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's that's the definition you're working with. Like um like some people feel like low energy when they're on their own and they kind of reboot when they're with people and some people like can re- they reboot when they're on their own and like they exert their energy when they're with people. It's like kind of where you Yeah, it's always kind of different. Like sometimes if I'm like around a small group of people or like one person, then I'll get a ton of energy. But, yeah. Uh, it's certainly when I'm like around large groups that are just kind of like, whew, just get super tired and I have to like, take a nap or something. I do feel that. I um, I don't like big groups. I, I don't feel as, especially if I don't know the people that well, I just don't feel that comfortable yeah. in that setting. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as far as like, was I more extroverted or am I more extroverted now than in high school? I, I don't think so. I think that I was probably too... 
too shy or too insecure or too socially inept to, you know, I guess be as talkative as I would be otherwise. So I don't think it's like I changed from being extroverted to, or from introverted to extroverted. I think I was, I'm always like an introvert, but I'm okay. more confident, I guess, or more like self-secure is a better word. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so where where do you think that came from? Was that a concerted effort, or was that something just kind of happened as you saw more shit? So I think um, <laughs> we're going deep here. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons. Um, let me try to number them off. I think one was my insecurity with religion. I think two was my insecurity with how I was defining myself as a person. Now, I guess if you, if you're curious, like I could go in depth for each of these points. Yeah. Just uh, wherever you feel comfortable going. Like, I think it would be interesting to hear like more of what was going on. I mean, yeah, whatever. Um, three, um, I'd say, yeah, lack of life experience. <laughs> Four, yeah. like lack of perspective, being too spoiled or comfortable with what I have five being kind of just naturally being kind of weird like not like I was act. I mean I was acting weird but like I'm just kind of like naturally I don't act the way other people do yeah it's kind of like um you don't, you're not really as concerned you don't naturally like kind of try to fit into a group I think exactly exactly I, I naturally try to repel against that right and so that probably caused a lot of social problems because I wasn't just going to be like I wouldn't want to just, like, hang out with people just for the sake of it, I guess. Anyway, so I guess we'll, maybe we'll try to start delving into each topic. So I think, I think as, the religion part's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. As far as religion goes, so I was raised Catholic. You know, like, my mom taught Sunday school, you know, went to church every Sunday. Pretty Catholic family. Um, so there's just, like, a lot of social repressions. I didn't learn about anything <laughs> you know i was very uh, yeah. like, sheltered shelter is a good word okay um, yeah uh, yeah all the way through like middle school you know and like i, I would even go to like um like christian club in middle school because like my parents wanted me to and because i i guess you know, at that time i was like yeah that's, that's crazy to hear now i mean like i know I, I know how that was but like that is crazy to hear now yeah it is wild i mean i know you had leo talking similar things yes yeah um, although i think for whatever reason i'm <laughs> much more harsh on religion now yeah this will this will get a lot more uh you got more strong feelings here yeah uh i don't know if that came from like having worse experience with religion or just because that's just who i am i don't know anyway but um so yeah i even go to like christian club in like middle school because maybe it's some way to find some sort of social group i don't know I was always just kind of like, either had like a couple friends or like on my own, you know, never that popular. So maybe it did give me some sort of like social connection to that I valued. Okay. Um, but also, I, you know, I just, I, because I was so sheltered and so indoctrinated, I, I wasn't able to have independent thought in middle school at all. Like it's wild um, when I think about what I thought, what was, you know, I was the same, like, I remember Leo, he's, and he said in middle school, he thought, like, being an atheist was insane, like, 
like controlled by the devil. I was the same way. I remember That's complaining crazy. about like a middle school teacher to my mom was like saying like, oh, she's obviously atheist. It's like how terrible, <laughs> you know? It's yeah, like, it's wild. It's fucking wild. Um, I hate myself now. <laughs> if uh, the idea, yeah, it's, it's wild. But anyway, so yeah, I got social repression. Um, was a big factor. So in like early high school, then I think meeting new people, having these analytical creative outlets like, you know, fan graphs, the whole baseball thing. Um, and then just learning about life and having life experiences, I think oh, drew out a, you know, a classic faith crisis in me. So mm-hmm. then I was like, oh, fuck. I was, ever since day one, I've been indoctrinated in the sense that like, you have a purpose to your life you do certain acts to glorify a certain dictator in the sky for certain benefits. Straightforward, you know, very right. black and white purpose, purpose to life, you know, like meaning. Yeah. Right. Things to do for certain reasons. So when I all of a sudden figured out that was fucking stripped away, <laughs> uh, wasn't very, wasn't very pretty. It was uh, a, a big adjustment. And it was also, was, this time period was also, so my, like, my brother has mental health issues, so uh, this was around the same time as he was having more complications with that, and there was a lot of stress kind of just around the house, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of yelling, mm-hmm. a lot of like, like there, like, my brother had like cops calling him, like, he like, there's like fights and stuff like that, you know, not, not good stuff, so. Right. Then, and also, also, this is another important point. In middle school, I went to Valley Middle School, so then when I went to Sage Creek, there was only like a handful of people going from Valley to Sage Creek, so I didn't really know anybody in high school. So, I, yeah, I had like a few friends like uh, from Sage Creek, like Nae, who and Girl, and, you know, those friendships really helped. But anyway, I always felt like I was just kind of, yeah, very, very, very different, very, not, like, not necessarily that I had to be, I just felt like I innately was. Right. So, um, all those, all those kind of things just kind of created this very dark, dark, nihilistic outlook on the world because I was like, ah, there's no meaning to anything. And this was the point where I'd be like, oh, my God, Thanksgiving's about, you know, white people killing natives. How terrible. Oh my yeah, gosh. you put a negative spin Christmas on everything. Christmas is about, like, you know, this capitalist greed and, you know, God's terrible and, you know, even 4th of July is just, like, blind nationalism. Like, I hate everything. <laughs> like, <it laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, and it's funny, it's funny, because I think there's a lot of things you can look at two ways, and I think um, those are all, like, accurate perspectives, like... Yeah, no, really, I still feel, you know, about the same way about those things. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, there's pictures of me, like, on, you know, Columbus Day, or then it was Columbus Day, like, I was dressed up, like, my parents dressed me up as you know, an Indian didn't dress me up as a Native American, they dressed me up as an Indian, you know, because, you know, I referred to them as Indian because it was like, that was kind of like how Europeans viewed American Indians. So anyway, you know, the, we, we, you know, they just dressed me up as an Indian and sent me to school and they like, took pictures of me like, oh, how, how beautiful, like, how cute. And when I look at those pictures now, you get mad. I get so angry. You know, my parents had like, pictures of the missions, um, you know, San Juan or whatever, the, the, you know, the missions in California, um, they're glorified. And, you know, all of a sudden I realized, you know, in high school, it's like, wait, 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 
that's the missions are about Spanish conquisition. Like they killed people if they didn't convert this sort of, and this was being like praised and idolized in my house. And so this just created all this just negativity, this hate, this wasn't, wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. But I was just being like kind of weird and all that. Anyway, so yeah, that made me not socially very adept. So then, so then it sounds like a big part of like building back that self-confidence and feeling more comfortable now comes from, you know, trying to take things and put a more positive spin on it. Is that, does that sound accurate? Yes. I think before that, I think there's, there's a lot of like, um, bad things that came with the whole faith crisis thing, but a great thing that came out of it was when I finally decided that fuck all of this, like I'm atheist. That was very liberating. So that was like a big, do you, oh, do you have like a story that goes along with it? Like a day that, was it like a gradual flip or was there like so, one moment where it was like, fuck it. Like I'm not even going to put up with this anymore. Uh, it was definitely a gradual shift. I think that, yeah, man, gosh, the more I think about it, you know, Armand has had such an incredible influence in my life. But anyway, it was really, you know, talking with Armand for hours. And, <laughs> you and, guys used to talk for hours. Oh, hours every, every day. Yeah. Uh, shoot. Um, but for whatever reason, he took it upon himself that he wanted to have this project to, like, almost, you know, save me in a sense because I think he, he knew how repressing religion was and he wanted me to... Uh, you know, be somewhat liberated. So anyway, so we had these, you know, conversations, and I think listening to him and his perspective, um, and also I was able to, you know, find different, whether like art mediums, like whether it's books or shows or movies, you know, to different ways of looking at the life and then just um, learning, you know, education, all that kind of stuff. So it was a gradual shift. I'd say about like mid junior year was kind of when I finally was like, all right, I'm, I'm atheist. I'm never going to church again. I'm like taking down the missions, like mm-hmm. the mag- mag- magnetic missions. On yeah, my yeah. Parents' refrigerator, like. Yeah, so, so for but, someone who might not understand, why why did you feel that it was like um, oppressing to to have these religious beliefs, and why was it so liberating when you didn't anymore? <laughs> Yeah, I guess oof, I guess we'll go back chronologically again. Um, so, being born Catholic, there's these certain beliefs you're supposed to have that are you know told to you from birth. I guess you don't really you don't really have the self awareness to be able to question it. So it's it's kind of like thought crimes in the sense that if I had the audacity to be to question god in my you know like elementary school mind like that was like sinful or incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. punishable by hell yeah <laughs> right like, i talked totally a lot about that like, yesterday yeah totally believed in hell um you know i i know there is like a lot of times i've talked to other people who feel the same way like elementary school through like middle school i was like i was always like afraid i was gay or something like that as if it was like gonna be torture if I was or something like that um and it's just kind of like you couldn't you couldn't think about the possibility of God not existing because to do so was 
putting yourself in grave, grave danger in a sin, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, that's crazy. That's why it's, you know, such thought crimes, you know, you can't think a certain way. And then also, so I've also had problems with like, kind of like obsessive or compulsive thinking. Um, and that's a terrible, terrible mixture with religion. <laughs> you know, my brother yeah. had it worse with his various mental health issues. Um, you know, he'd stay at, like, sleepovers when he was, like, 12 years old. Like, he, he'd go into, lock himself into a different room and, like, read the same Bible verse, like, 10 times or, like, 11 times or 20 times because he felt like he had to or else something bad was going to happen. Because, you know, that's kind of what... It's fucking crazy. He is. You, you like a threat. Feel these, you feel these compulsions to do these behaviors, and if you do them successfully, this threat will be alleviated, but if you don't, then this terrible threat will come on to you. And that's kind of the same thing as religion. And when I was, you know, in elementary and middle school, uh, <laughs> I would have, uh, yeah, these compulsive thoughts to, like, have to pray. If I slipped up saying, like, if I, if I forgot the prayer, said the wrong words or something like that. And, you know, I know a lot of people have different experiences with religion, and they don't have the, this problem of, like, obsessive and compulsive thinking. I know religion helps a lot of people. Um, I would still argue that individually, maybe you should think about the way Anyway, religion affects you, but it certainly affected me in this in this very dark and negative way to the point where I'd be like staying up at night, like being like uh, saying prayers over and over and over again, and like trying to think, like trying to somehow not think I hate God because it was like so. Also, like in my mind, like certain images or certain phrases would just kind of like pop into my brain, like uncontrollably, like. I wasn't able to filter through my thoughts, which is kind of scary. It's like kind of like I wasn't able to control what I was thinking about. It was like something else was controlling it. So anyway, so these, these I guess, quote-unquote sinful thoughts at this time were just kind of popped in my head, and ah, I'd be so scared and terrified. Like, where is that coming from? Like, who's controlling this? Like, it was just fucking mess. Yeah. It's um, just, it's crazy because it, I think it's really natural to have a flow of thoughts. It's like not necessarily in your control and you can you sort through them and think about things and it's just like a natural progression of like thinking about the world around you but then to put yourself in a box where you're not allowed to go to certain places in your own fucking mind like that's that's a that's a crazy reality and it's also interesting because i feel like there's people who like it are religious but they don't put themselves there because they're not like like they're religious by name, but they're not actually like fully committed to trying to live it and really thinking about like what they need to do day to day to like fully fulfill God's like wishes. And um, that's interesting too. So yeah. I, I guess it was like a, well, I already know, but it was a much more like strict religious upbringing for you than most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents are religious, you know, and they, uh, at least, especially my mother, like, she credits a lot of things to religion, like, the, they, my mom and my dad, like, met at some sort of religious thing in Mexico, like, some sort of, like, retreat or something in Mexico, and they, and they met that way, and, like, my mom, I remember, at, she was saying to me, like, at the time, she was having doubts whether she should go, and then she talked to her priest, and her priest was like, oh, you should go, and so then when she met my dad there, it was this natural thought that, like, oh, yes, you know, God, you know, gave me this, like, this was God's intention and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, she fully credits, you know, God and Christianity for, you know, the reason why she met her husband, for, for that example, so, hmm. and, you know, she went, she's gone through so many, so many things, like, um, 
you know, when my brother was having those serious mental health issues and I wasn't doing very well, you know, also like her, her closest sister died and she also, my dad was like, uh, having problems with like retirement cause he was working till he was like 68. My dad's like 70 now, but anyway, he retired at 68. So he's working 70 now in his life. And so that was having a lot of problems. So my mom would go to work, she'd make dinner, but I, but then there's like a couple weeks where she had to take weeks off of work where her days were in the morning. She'd go visit her sister in the hospital. Then in the afternoon, she goes visit my brother in the hospitals. And then at night, she'd come home and make dinner. And then she'd go to bed and do it again. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she'd prepare so much stuff for us while going through all these things. So I know that she uses her faith in a way that allows her to accomplish those things with more joy, with more hope, with more purpose. And, you know, uh, I think that's powerful. So as much as I really hate religion and how much I think it, I mean, like, in a sense, it also, you know, kind of like the, if you zoom out far enough, like, okay, maybe it could give me good perspective in my life. But anyway, so it caused a lot of pain when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But so as much as that happened, I, I, you know, there's certain there's certain cases where I where I look at someone who's religious and say like okay fine if you if you, as long as you know my mom's kind of like you know she doesn't like hate gay people or she doesn't like hate trans people or stuff like that so so for me like as long as someone's belief doesn't necessarily it gets so tricky because yeah well if you take the Bible at face value it's really hard to be tolerant and that's why that's interesting you know yeah. like yeah. I know, it really is. I mean, yeah, I remember you you're talking about we like, like the Bible's very close minded. Yeah, yeah. And uh I think there's so much literature that you could take as like canons of how to behave that's just beautiful. You know? Um you could read to kill a mockingbird and get way better morals than if you read the Bible, you know? Yeah. There's so much literature and art that you can surround yourself with to, to kind of show you how to live a positive life. I don't think you need this. No. Based off of the supernatural, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting outlet. And it's like, you know, I I respect it if it helps you in that way. And I don't, I mean, like, to preface, I don't disrespect people who believe in religion. I just personally don't don't have great feelings about it myself. Um, Yeah. I never hate the individual person. No, I, not at all. Like, not at all. I know a lot of people who are religious and I, it's like, but all, all I'm saying is like, I, I have, I, I want to find a good way to put this, but I just, I guess I want to say, I just, I respect it more when it's like an outlet for something. Although it, it's definitely not necessary. There's a lot of ways to like put yourself in a position to be positive in your life that, where you don't have to believe in the supernatural. Yeah, I strongly agree. Um, so, on one of my part-time jobs, we work with uh, it was like a vegan restaurant. So, we work with like a lot of Syrian refugees because they're Muslim. They don't want to work with like meat. Um, mm-hmm. So, anyway, so I had like five or six Syrian refugees who worked at this kind of like vegan fast food place with me. Um, and listening to them speak because they're really awesome people. And, you know, a couple, a couple of them have the command of English to be able to talk about really deep and important stuff. So, you know, 
you know, an individual story and, you know, that this, this guy had to leave his family from Syria to come to the United States to make money to mm. support himself, his family, and also his, like his new family in the United States, but also his family from back home in Syria. He works 80 hours a week, you know, he goes from an eight hour job in the morning to an eight hour job in the afternoon slash night. And uh, he's still the most happy and joyful person I've ever met. And, uh, you know, he deeply credits his love for, for God for the reasons for doing that. I mean, and if, yeah. if that if, if that helps him, like, may, you know, that, that's great. Like, that I, is great. I, that's beautiful. It's there's so, there's so much power, I guess, in kind of aligning yourself with some sort of bigger than yourself kind of ideology, I guess. I just would hope that maybe people understand that it doesn't have to rely on the supernatural or superstition or certainly hate. It certainly doesn't have to rely on yeah. intolerance or, or Absolutely hate. not. Right. Like I said, you can look at literature. You know, like for me when I you know, kinda like moved away from religion, there's something so liberating about being able to respect everyone. Like I've never been able to before. And respect myself. Mm. Like I've never been able to before. Ah, uh, so beautiful. And there's also, yeah, the people, the people around me who were, uh, who came from different backgrounds or had different kind of worldviews than me. I found talking with them so so important in terms of like me able to like gain some sort of self confidence. You know, going <laughs> tying this back to how I was able to be more self-confident, I guess. Yeah. Just kind of understanding that I can be okay with, like, whoever I decide to associate with myself or associate myself with and however I want to act or be, or, you know, so long as I'm acting in a way that helps people or at least doesn't hurt them, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it just, it just allowed me to be like, okay, like, I can be independent and yeah self self-confident so that that's one long story about that yeah it's interesting that's um i it, it is i think it's just crazy how much religion ties into this it's um yeah i mean wild I know, thing. you love to study psychology and like when you think of like confirmation bias and you know group think and all these kind of different biases and person's natural biological brain and if you think about how they interact with say religion like you see how people are kind of hardwired to be able to be I guess believe in this these kind of supernatural substantiated things because it allows allows for community you know you always mm-hmm. look for things that support your line of thinking yeah, it also it really serves to people's self-centered bias, which um, obviously has existed all throughout history, like when we thought we were the center of the universe and, and things like that. But it's always been like, you know, people are the most important thing. And um, yeah, it just it's a really strong outlet for bringing that about, especially when you consider that God he created everything, but it seems like his entire agenda is kind of based around managing people. And then like, 
it just it just creates this amount of purpose and meaning like you were saying that's just like makes humans as a species like so important and i think that is something that's really appealing about it to some people yeah definitely um certainly you know i, I know there's like a lot of debate about what ethnicity jesus actually was but certainly white people took that and made you know jesus white and like uh you know he had this kind of yeah, like people are some sort of some sort of like end goal, like in the evolutionary chain. Well, I mean, I guess people don't even believe in evolution, but I guess the idea that yeah, yeah, humans are sort of like yeah, divine, intentional, purposeful creature. I guess that's I, I think that's definitely the whole doctrine of like having a purpose in general. I think is very attractive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's no mystery to me why religion's a big deal just kind of hurts sometimes yeah so seems like mental health is an important thing for you and your family do you have like you know and and it also sounds like religion is something that helps a lot of people stay on the right track mentally but do you have like other thoughts on how people can self-regulate yeah um i think at least in terms of interaction with religion everyone's different you know for me religion is very toxic to being mentally healthy mm-hmm. but for other people obviously it's very important so right. that's you know, something to be decided individually um as far as drawing from it sounds like self-awareness is very important from experiences around me I, yeah i mean i guess self-awareness because like honestly for me i guess i wouldn't think anything was wrong or like to admit something was wrong would be like make me seem weak or like there's always there's always these people I feel like who say that they have mental health problems I'm like please like come on like everyone has anxiety but yeah so I always have like that kind of knee-jerk reaction like you don't want to like coddle yourself you don't you know kind of like this tough love towards myself like yeah not even tough love like just toughness <laughs> okay there wasn't really some sort of love part about it. It was just kind of like this weird, misplaced toughness to myself. Like on the inside, you felt like you had to to be that way. Yeah, it'd be like to admit otherwise, I just, like wasn't true, or like just because, like I, I honestly, I don't think I could be diagnosed with something. But that, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. But that doesn't mean that you have. I mean, honestly, maybe I could. It's hard to say. <laughs> that's not, yeah, like, that's okay. not like inside. But um, that's irrelevant. Is what I'm trying to kind of say is like, if you have, if there's, if you have difficulty finding joy in your life, if you have difficulty not being like angry or sad or depressed all the time, I think I think the most important thing is to be willing to be vulnerable. Because mm. I certainly wasn't. Okay, so like whether that be talking to someone about it, or just, or at least being honest with yourself and saying, "All right, I have this issue. What do I need to do to get past it?" Is that is that kind of sum that up? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that talking with other people is really important, but I know that you know sometimes people aren't very socially adept. You know, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> like you could just say, "Oh, yeah, talk about it." Like. That's an extremely, extremely... It's a tough place to go. I mean, tough place to go. At least for me, I couldn't talk to my parents because we had 
you know, at that point in my life, extremely different values. Yep. You know, my brother was having his, his very tough time, so we talked a lot, which was really helpful. But mm-hmm. certainly I didn't have, like, I, I had, you know, friends, but, you know, well, they weren't really strong enough friendships to be able to talk about that kind of stuff with. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people struggle to have those kind of friendships. Um, but find, especially also, like, finding mentors, like, I talked with Coach D a lot about it, and, uh, you know, you know what he had to say. You know, he, he had his own kind of, I mean, he, his, his mental health problems are very different than mine. He, he had, like, history of, like, substance abuse and stuff like that. And, okay. And, and he was, like, kind of able to help with how he got through that? Just listening to him talk about, yeah, I guess... He just kind of he just kind of allowed me to understand that like there's there's people who are willing to accept your vulnerability and you know really love to be able to share their vulnerability in response. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so so powerful. You know, you can connect with people on like easy things, but I think most powerful connections that, that I've found come from when you connect with someone on the the vulnerable stuff. Um, I think that breeds a lot of like self kind of okayness I guess for yeah. lack of a better term so yeah definitely just willing to be vulnerable um, being open minded as much as possible and uh, yeah um, shoot and just you know the good, the good, the good people in your life will be there to support you. How much, how much, so the, the nihilistic thoughts, cause I, I have those to a sense too. How much, how much of that is still there and how much is like, you have okay, a different so, uh, perspective so, on. What was the last part? And like, how, like how much of that do you still subscribe to? Because like, if, if you don't believe in a higher purpose, it's hard not to be at least somewhat, but then how much of, like where where have you kind of changed or if you have like and found meaning yeah, in yeah, places? Exactly. So I guess I draw a lot from different shows or books or talking like public intellectuals that I listen to podcasts about. Mm-hmm. I, draw, I draw from them and what they have to say on this kind of same kind of subject. And what I was able to kind of learn and moving from you know, the faith crisis to being, like, nihilistic and everything, hating everything, I kind of realized that while there's, while I still don't believe there's any inherent value in anything, that there is, there is, like, joy to be felt, you know what I mean? Like, that feeling's real. It's not, like, some sort of myth. Right. Like, Like it's kind of your way of creating meaning. Yeah, and... When you feel, but it's but it's dangerous because you know people in dark places can feel, can get pleasure from doing terrible things. That's you know scary. But anyway, I guess I guess really what I think is that um, when nothing has any inherent value, it's like you're able to put value onto things you want. But it's you know it gets a little hectic when. Maybe you don't, you, you personally don't have the inclinations to like 
not want to hurt people, I guess, <laughs> you know, I guess, so basically it kind of just goes to like hardcore kind of like ethical philosophy. Like I think that people have, you know, like, like you know, all, all rational things, for animals too, have the ability to feel like pain and pleasure. And I think, uh, pleasure is good and pain's bad. So I think it's a, it's a really good ideal to try to, and not just pleasure. I think that joy is different than pleasure. You know? Right. Um, yeah. Joy is extremely important, and probably more important. Yeah, definitely more important. But everyone has their own definition for those things anyway. But I, 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 yeah. But anyway, so trying to put value into things that create joy is kind of where I'm at. Like I, I'm, I'm able to, like even though that like talking with the mechanic or whatever um, today like didn't have any inherent value like there's still some sort of like appreciation for each other's existence that I think lends some sort of good feelings and I think when you're when you you can apply value to that and I think it's also cool that sometimes if you apply value to the same thing as something else someone else does like it kind of creates some sort of like cultural legitimacy or some sort of like shared at identity or some sort of connection that's deeper than surface level and I think that's it just at least for me it makes me feel good so I guess yeah recognizing that you know we're all gonna kind of you know I kind of view death as like some sort of equalizer yeah no one's above no one's above death I remember I was thinking that about this high school like when I, whenever I walk around, like, and it was like a cloudy, cloudy day, and I looked at it, it was like overcast, and I'm like, what if the clouds were like death? Like, everyone's kind of underneath it, you know? It's like, mm. there's, there's no, there's no hierarchy. You say that was, you say that was a thought from elementary school? High school. Oh, high school. Okay, okay. That made, I was like, wow, that's a really, like, mature thought. That's... No, no, in elementary school, I didn't have any sort of, like, self, I didn't have any sort of, like, thinking ability. Yeah. You know, that's a weird thing anyway, too. Yeah. But anyway, um, what was I saying? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this kind of idea that everyone's equal in the long run. So why don't we just try to like, you know, create as much joy as possible and try to, and really, cause like joy is kind of subjective sometimes, not yeah. always, but what's really objective is pain. So for me, it's like really trying to not cause pain or try to alleviate pain that's, that's a big thing for me. So I can put value to that because I'm free to put value to whatever I want. But it just gets kind of scary because, like, for, for someone with those same kind of belief sets, you know, maybe they put value on something that gives them pleasure at someone else's expense. And so, mm. you know, I guess just... Yeah, it's... it's it, it seems like it, make, it makes a lot of sense given pretty much everywhere where this conversation's gone that that political science and entering that realm and trying to use that for good is so important in your life right now. Like that kind of just all comes together. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like just love studying political science. Cause like the way I look at it, like politics is just kind of like emotional, visceral, opinionated, um, very personal and passionate and political science is kind of the study of all that. So, mm-hmm. you know, politics is just this kind of, I don't want to say phenomenon, but it's just this interesting little, cultural event where psychology and sociology and economics and client si- or climate science and like everything you know yeah. it's everything it's it's even physics and biology you know i did this project 
Hey, real quick. Sorry to cut you off. We got one minute left on this recording, and it's going to cut us off. We can roll into another one, or we could wrap up real quick, whichever you prefer. I don't know. What what do you think? I mean, I could always talk forever, but... I'll I'll roll into a second one. Um, They're hour intervals. I might might take like a couple-minute break and hop back on. I mean, sure. All right, so picking back up where we left off, you want to you continue talking about that project? Uh, yeah, sure. I guess I could quickly sketch it. Um, okay. It's this project I did in the fall, Maricosta College. Um, so basically it was on the uh, potential biological, or the potential links in a person's biology and uh, their political affiliation. So it was a really interesting project because it was kind of like this weird interdisciplinary thing, so... Basically, it was kind of like a literature review on, you know, on these research, on this uh, section of research that certain academics are doing right now. It's a pretty, pretty new area of research. But anyway, so they look at, like, a person's brain structure, like, um, I don't know how in-depth I can get into this without mm-hmm. people understanding what I'm talking about. But So, like, there's part of the brain called the amygdala, and uh, a lot of people think that... Uh, Fear, like uh, certain parts of it, it's like emotional like uh, so like uh, your fear is processed through the amygdala although there's debates about how that works um, okay yeah but anyway man I feel like this is so complicated that I just I would just go on forever but whatever I'll just catch the basics of it mm. so we, we found that like uh, for people who are conservative like maybe they have they have larger amygdalas, whereas people who are liberal have, like, larger anterior cingulate cortex. Anterior cingulate cortex is correlated with empathy, amygdala is correlated with fear. So we're like, mm. okay, does this make sense? Like, okay, well, so maybe conservatives, uh, for a reason why they don't want these migrants coming across the border is because they have a stronger fear response. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, you see this, like, maybe that's why they want to invest more in war, or, like, in defense. Right, that makes sense. Um, you can see that it goes through a lot of, like, maybe they're afraid of, like, I mean, I don't want to, radical conservatives at least are afraid of, like, minorities because maybe they don't understand their culture or something like that. I know this paints, like, a dark depiction of conservatives. Like, I'm sorry. No, I didn't <laughs> think so. There's clear, there's clear bias on my end. Pretty leftist. So anyway, um, so maybe I'll try to, no, I mean that seems reasonable. Like, like generally speaking, conservatives they do they're more pro defense, they're more anti immigration. So, like that's a, that's a rationalization, and I think the empathy thing makes sense too because people who are more liberal tend to want, you know, more redistribution, more ways of helping other people. So, like, I I I think exactly, that's a pretty exactly. fair way that's to go about. That's what the project was about. So the project kind of like like um, sort of professors kind of gathered this random group of. Students um, or random people, they had them self-describe themselves as very conservative, conservative, very liberal, liberal, whatever. Um, and then they went through these brain scans. They um, they popped up a threatening image, and then like conservatives would have more activity in the the amygdala. Like I think it was some part of the amygdala, um, which is associated with kind of like fear response. Hmm. Whereas yeah. liberals didn't have that same kind of uh, brain activity in that area. And they, and they showed like an image that would inspire empathy. You know, liberals had more activity in the interior cingulate cortex. But, um, you know, I, I think the strongest case for this kind of idea that a person's innate biological makeup 
has a strong influence on their political ideology is just the social science data that links creativity with like liberalism and like desire for structure with conservatism. Those are very strong links in so much academic literature. Hmm. And like there's more character traits that could describe. But I think the strongest argument, which hasn't necessarily been proved in like the kind of lab situations I was describing earlier, like the experiments. But the strongest there's a, there's a strong literature understanding that like, creative people tend to be liberal. People who desire structure and organization are generally more conservative. So if you take the understanding that, well, okay, is, why is someone creative? I think most biologists would argue it's got to be their biological makeup. So if you take it kind of like if A, then B, or sorry, like, yeah, if A, then B, if B, then C, then A, if A, then C, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, if a person's create, if a person has a certain biological makeup, they're creative. If they're creative, they're leftist. Therefore, if a person has specific biological makeup A, they're leftist. That kind of that kind of logic. Okay. So that's kind of that's kind of like a project that just is super interesting to me. Uh, combines psychology and biology and political science. It's the reason why I love the discipline stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that made sense. Like, no, I completely, that, like, really, completely. For yeah. me, at least. It's really like kind of like basic. Like, I'm not very good at like describing things not in depth. Yeah. It's, it's a skill I need to learn, like to be able to describe something simply. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know. I think it's just practice and like trying to trying to get in other people's head. Like, I think that's something that's really important in writing. I mean, and speaking too. I guess it's like, <laughs> like how how can I take this idea and explain it in a way to where somebody who's never heard it before can understand it like really i think it's just thoughtfulness like just trying to like yeah it's certainly easier writing because you can think about it right right <laughs> you're speaking you're just kind of like all right here we go you do it on the fly i always like i always like to give examples like i i don't know if i've done as much in this podcast but i re-listened to the one from yesterday already and i said like i said my idea and then said for example and like ran off a bunch of shit and i, I did that at least four times and that's I think that's really helpful because like you say something and it's like it's that whole internalization thing like you don't really understand something until you internalize it so sometimes getting an example where it's like concrete can really do that for you yeah yeah definitely I guess maybe a good a good example is maybe think about some people in your life who are either conservative or liberal and think about if they're like creative or if they like structure you know I guess it's just because, like, I found that, you know, if I meet someone within, like, about 10, 15 minutes, with about 80, 90% accuracy, I can tell if they're going to be liberal or conservative, you know, even if they're just talking about, like, the weather, you know? That's interesting. Okay, yeah. so what what are your tip-offs in, like, a simple conversation that let you know? Okay, so it's, like, um, I remember this family gathering with, like, some uncles I didn't really know well, and they were just talking about, like, oh, like one of the uncles was talking about, it's like, yeah, man, it's really hot in California. The fires are crazy. And then the other guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, next year it's going to be really cold. And, like, it's kind of, like, dismissive of, you know, some sort of, like, danger to California because of all the fires and heat. And you're like, okay, like, you notice, like, this person probably is conservative because they're not taking the – they don't they don't appear to be taking, like, a climate crisis seriously, if that makes sense. Or – uh you know, any, any signs of, like, um, hmm. yeah, just things like that. I guess it's weird, I guess. I've, 
it doesn't always work out. Maybe yeah. it go high, but certainly over 50%, like in the 60, 70 range at least. But I don't know. I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it. It definitely, I mean, it definitely flows with a certain personality. Like where, I mean, that's, that's the thing I think I've understood more, particularly in the last year than before, is that like, everything you do is tied around what you believe so yeah i mean it kind of it all goes together a lot more than it seems like at first like it, think about like your high school teachers for example there's only one high school teacher i've been surprised about but you know i can tell like their political ideology after one class you know yeah so there's only was, one teacher i was wrong about i don't know if you want me to... yeah i do who was it it was fever because i think i could be wrong i don't want to misportray fever like so sorry I do. Yeah. I, think, I, th- I mean, I was, I would assume that he was kind of leftist because I think mean, he's creative and all that kind of stuff. But maybe he is. Honestly, like, I, I, for some reason, I, I dude, I kind of got the I vibe. Just, I don't, I don't know. Like the, the kind of like, you know, there's gonna be a time where no one's teaching you. Go out and do your own thing. Like he, he was like that, and I thought that was kind of. I guess, I guess it's a lack of structure, and based off what you said before, that might be more left. But I kind of felt like. Like, go figure it out on your own was kind of more trending the other way, if you want to try to tie it together. Yeah, I remember that. That was yeah. that was weird. I, I, I certainly hope I'm right about it. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Dude, one of these days, we need to go back and, like, just talk to teachers a little bit. I'd love to. Like, I'd love to see Mrs. Moe's reaction. Or you, you didn't really have Mrs. Moe. I didn't. I know the story, but I didn't have her. Yeah, I'd love to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> you want to you wanna elaborate on why? Um, so, in, what, like, senior year English, AP literature, I would come in late every day, um, every single day, about, probably, like, 15 minutes to a half an hour, sometimes, like, 45 minutes late, she was my first period class, and, and, all this kind of stuff, so anyway, go, go back about 15 seconds, you just cut out. Oh, um. You said... I'd come in late every day. She didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. She would let me know. Um, <laughs> times, like after class. So anyways, okay, one okay. day comes along, maybe like a month into school or our trimester or whatever, and I'm classic 25 minutes late, and I go to open the door, and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is this? And the door's locked. And then I like look through the blinds, and then Mrs. Moe looks at me and then just kind of like shakes her head and walks away. <laughs> so I just stood out there and I was like wow I'm locked out of class so eventually I just kind of (laughs) left like yeah fuck this and uh, yeah I gained a lot of respect for her I was like well I mean hey she was willing to lock me out of class because I was late like that's a lot of respect you know that's that's against the rules in high school. Like she could have gotten in trouble for that. Like yeah, but she didn't give a fuck, and like I appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, like I probably wouldn't have done the same thing if I was the teacher, but like I don't know. Uh, I respected it. Like she clearly didn't care about formality or custom, or she just wanted me to be on time. And she didn't appreciate it that I wasn't, so she acted on it in kind of a funny way. <laughs> it's really funny. So I don't know, I appreciated that really. Uh, that is. I always like Mrs. Mo. I don't. I don't know if she liked me or not. <laughs> I don't think she hated me. Yeah, that's really funny. That sounds like an interesting dynamic. Like, I always thought she kind of liked me. I could be wrong. <laughs> I mean, she had she had some faith that you weren't gonna go and try to like get her in trouble with anyone when she locked you out. That's. I mean, 
Yeah. That's an yeah. interesting thing. I, I remember the first time, because I had heard the story before, and then one time you were saying it, and you were like, yeah, I respected that. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? Like, but I get it. Like, I get it. But it's, yeah. it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. No other teacher, I think, would care enough for, you know? Cause yeah. She really cared. Like, I it genuinely that. bothered her. Like. Yeah, she genuinely thought it was important for me to be on time, too. And it turns out I'm not, I mean, I still don't really have a great on-time record, but it hasn't <laughs> bothered me in life so far, so, but maybe it will someday, maybe I'll think about that. And, yeah. That's funny. When, uh, my, fuck, I guess this was senior year, my first period math class, our teacher didn't give a shit, and I rolled up 30 minutes late every day, and, like, I respected that, like, I respected it's funny because it's the pure opposite, but I respected like our teacher was like, I'm going to teach you if you want to listen, great. If you want to sit on your phone, great. If you don't want to show up, great. Like, but I'm, I'm going to do my job and then you guys can do your job. Like I, I respected that and it's like the polar opposite, but like I get yeah. both. I mean, I, I guess I kind of do too. Like, shoot, I'm trying to think of other first period teachers I've had and responses to me being late. I remember, um, fuck, what's his name? Fossum. Yeah, that's what I was talking about, dude. Fossum. Dude, Fossum was such a fucking homie. I was such a fucking joke in that class. I'm so terrible. He probably had such a low opinion of me. Um, <laughs> dude, we fucked around in that class, too. Yeah, but it wasn't just, like, fucking around. It was just, like, when I was so clearly just not good. <laughs> like, not a good person, but just, like, I wasn't... I wasn't... Yeah, I just wasn't good. So, anyway... Mm-hmm. But he was just such a homie. Like, so I, he was my second period. So I already had first period off, but I'd still come in like half an hour later every day just because I could. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this, there's this one point where, um, shoot, I, I forget the specific situation, but it was like he was he was absent um, a day and they had a substitute teacher in. And I came like half hour late and substitute didn't notice and nothing really happened. So then the attendants called him the next day um, being like, Jonathan Lena, like, where was he? We didn't have like an excused absence notice. He wasn't marked at your class. And Fossum was like, oh yeah, he was here. I just forgot to mark him. <laughs> and then he hung up and I was like, wow. And no one knew who he's talking about because like, he didn't, you know, there wasn't any names running around, but like I totally knew it was me. Yeah. Right. It was just so obvious. And kind of, he was kind of looking at me too, but uh, yeah, he was just like, yeah, he was here. Sorry about that. I was like, yeah, best respect. Yeah, that's chill. Dude, I have, I have a funny Fossum story. I mean, because he kind of let you, like, if you don't interrupt his lecture, you do whatever you want when you're in, like, a college class. I mean, he is a college professor now, I believe. But, yeah, dude. Yeah, I've had different experiences in college class. Some professors that I some professors. Really? I mean, maybe it's different for me because all my classes have been really big. I know Miracosta is a lot more like a high school in this structure where, like, the professors probably care a lot more about what you're doing while you're in the class. Yeah, I was actually referring to Berkeley. My experience. Really? Okay. Well, yeah. let's let's pivot. What what's what's been your experience there? I'm curious. Well, the poli sci department has a strict no laptops policy. Oh, I hate that. Okay. Honestly, I appreciate it. Really? Because fucking laptops—they're so annoying. <laughs> yeah. When I'm people... sitting behind someone on a laptop, it's so fucking annoying. It's like, I mean, why are they even there? Like, at that point, they should just leave. Cause, like, well, you can take notes on it, but I guess most people end up getting sidetracked. I definitely no do. Does. No one does, dude. Like, really? I, 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 I mean, maybe in your experience, you've seen people take notes on their laptop. It's usually 50-50 when I see them. Dude, I mean, maybe. I, but it just is extremely annoying for me. 
Um, but they, they strongly feel that taking notes by hand, you know, there's psychological reasons. Oh yeah. No, if I want to remember something, I do it by hand. 100%. Like that's real. So I guess what I'm saying is that, but I hate when I'm in class, it annoys me. And then also like, yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, we we probably it's, have... it's, an, it's a barrier to learning. Okay, it really is. And like I get distraction. Yeah, they don't have a place in the classroom. If I was a professor, would I ban them or not? Uh, no, I would think about that. Yeah, but I really do think that laptops in class are a big barrier to learning. And uh, you know, when you're up there trying to, you know, the professors I've had pretty much my whole academic career, but especially, you know, at Berkeley and Western Washington, you know, the, these universities, you know, the professors that I really, really care about their subject matter and really care about making mm. a positive change for their students. And I could very much understand how frustrating it is to know that students aren't paying attention and while doing that, negatively contributing to people who are trying to pay attention. So. Interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know... Maybe I'm biased because I don't personally value the school system very much as, as is, you know, I've talked about that a lot, but, um, I don't know. I don't think I felt that same energy towards like really caring about the teaching as much at UCSB. There's, I mean, there's been some teachers who are like that, but there's been some that are just like, it feels like they're going through the motions. And I don't think the econ department helps there because all the like, slideshows and tests and stuff are so like it's all pre-made it's all like it's almost like the intro classes to econ are like so just so like overly structured and they rotate through professors and it's just like there's no real yeah passion behind it it's just like all right like we're gonna give you guys these classes these are the basics and let's get rid of the kids who don't belong in this major and that was like the whole vibe and i didn't i think that vibe I disliked more than the subject matter, actually. Yeah, I had a completely different experience at Western Washington. That's great school. Me. Yeah, that's great school. I left for you know other reasons. Um, but um, yeah, what, what, Western Washington doesn't really have a big graduate um, sector to their school. It's um, heavily undergraduate focused. Okay. The classes are smaller, and the professors that I had all really cared, and you know. They wrote their own exams. They all had their own independent way of running the class. I thought it was very interesting to see how each professor wanted to run their class and the methodology behind their exams. But yeah, they're always available for like office hours and like after class. It was like really, the professors were really invested in their undergraduate students and like the mm-hmm. intro classes there. And yeah, that was definitely that was definitely um, powerful. Yeah, yeah that is cool. Miracosta was a little different. Like, Miracosta was kind of nice because it was, like, professors obviously only taught undergraduate, like, you know, intro classes. Yeah, yeah. It was also kind of like a high school, like... That's the vibe I've always... Yeah. The the education at Western Washington was much, much, much better at Miracosta than Miracosta. But, I mean, Miracosta's great option. It's it's so cost-effective. Yeah, that's what I would think. Also about school that I've learned, it's one of those cliche statements that... So whatever, but like you really do get in, get what you put in, you know. Like you yeah. put in a lot, you get a lot. If you don't, you won't. And that's true of miracles. They're just like a lot of things in life. Yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, it seems like community college is a really good route because oh, it's a tremendous route. I mean, I've, 
it's amazing. Like the ability for me to go from Western to UC Berkeley, like it was facilitated through your community college. And, you know, for, for people later in life who want to get back into school, that's great. For people who don't have economic resources to be able to afford you, that's great. But even for just upper middle class people like ourselves, you know, you get so, you can, if you put in a lot into your education, you'll still get out a lot. And then you have all this much more, more money and you have more life experience to be able to handle yourself better when you're on your own. And uh, all that kind of stuff. I'm just a huge supporter of community colleges. They're amazing. And they should be free. You know, Miracosta actually, um, this is interesting. They, they started this policy, I think it was this year, last year, for freshmen, for the first year at Miracosta. It's free. It's free? Yeah, for the first year. Respect. Yeah, it's awesome. Like honestly, like I, <laughs> I, I appreciate community colleges a lot. Actually, even though, in general, like the education education system, I'm iffy on. But when it comes to community college, like, what they can do for underserviced people and like groups, it's it's so it's so powerful. Like, I respect that. And then, it's just so in contrast to these other schools where you're paying 50 grand a year to go there. And it's like, well, what's, what's that 50 grand going to like, or like, let's break this down. Why, why do I need to spend 50 grand for this education? How does that make sense? But, but yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing to like set people on a path to a, like save the money for two years and then b like be in a comfortable position to, to live at home, save money that way, go to classes and then get to whatever university they want to go to. I know, especially the California community colleges being tied with the UCs. I mean, that's, I don't yeah, know how yeah. states work, but, you know, California, we're so lucky for so many reasons, but, you know, the UC school system is phenomenal, obviously, and it's easy, it's, it's, it's doable, it's very, very manageable Yeah. for everybody, I think, to be able to get into a UC from Maricosta or any, any community college, but especially Maricosta since, like, they get property tax from, like, I think, um, What's the fucking rich place called? In Encinitas, like the east side of Encinitas, people know what I'm talking about. Um, um, east side of Encinitas, like, like you know those hills, like Rancho Santa Fe area. Yeah, that's the one, Rancho Santa Fe. Okay, yeah, I've done a lot of baseball there. That area is cool. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very rich. A lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Mostly gets property taxes from there, and like you know, rich Encinitas, rich Carlsbad, Rusty Ranch, all that kind of stuff. So Miracosta has like the most money of all the community college. Okay. In California, so Miracosta specifically is tremendous. All, pretty much all my professors that had Miracosta were from UC schools. Oh, okay. UCLA, UCSD, you know, they're all they're all really good. But I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Like, I, I I didn't go to like the first two years at UC, and I know that people who went the first two years, like you, don't have a good impression. But for me, at Western Washington University, I got a much better education there than I did at Miracosta. Who um. Who else has had bad impressions of UCs? I mean, like, I, I don't, I want to say, like you said before, you get, you get what you put in and like, it's really stressful when you miss a lot of classes and then cram study at the end and that's going to bias your opinion. So like, I don't, I don't mean to like totally shit on it, but I just think in general, I haven't felt that a lot of teachers have like the passion for what they're doing, which is something I deeply respect. And then there's been like a lot of classes where I had to take it to graduate, but I'm like, like I just I, I really try to learn from everything I do and there were just legitimately classes where I took the whole thing and was like I don't feel like I took any value out of this. But then on the flip But like on the flip side there's somewhere in the moment I thought I didn't take any value and then I think about something later and I reference that in a way that like 
changed my belief and the way I think about it. And I was like, huh, like that was hidden in there, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, personally, I've taken a ton of value from all my classes. But um, I hear people, again, this this isn't really my, like the majors I'm going to talk about, like I don't really have any sort of knowledge about, but like in certain like uh, biology classes or chemistry classes, like on the exams, like it's, normal to get like a 45 or 55 percent grade and you know it's curved up to be like an a or something like that because everyone mm. does so terribly on it so That's it just makes up. me ask myself like what's the fucking point like if you don't know the material yet you're still getting like an a like what's the fucking point of your education like it seems like it's yeah. to weed out whoever can't do it like it's not about learning it's more about proving your abilities and that's just backwards yeah that's that's why I felt in the econ was like it wasn't about teachers trying to help you learn the material and then proving if you got it or not it was like this concerted effort to make it challenging enough so that some people couldn't get it and like that was the main focus of what was going on there and yeah I think that's the whole impacted major thing like it's a fucked up incentive system to put in place Really, the best class, I, I had a lot of really good classes at Western Washington. I really did. But I had this English class. The professor was just amazing. So influential. It really honestly changed my life. Got me interested in like sci-fi. Um, just reinvigorated into like literature and kind of like storytelling and that kind of stuff. Anyway, but his class, yeah, his, his writing assignments, unlimited amount of rewrites for a better grade. And so I, you know, I'd write my assignment, I'd get the grade back, and I'd go into his office hours, I'd talk to him about it, I'd write it again, get another grade back, go back in, until I got an A. Yeah. You know? And, and everyone, like, could, if everyone you... who wanted to, like, literally could. And then once you got that A, you really mastered the material. My yeah, that's so brilliant. Much. It was amazing. It was the best, it was the best structured class I've ever taken. But you can't you can't do that when you need a certain amount of people not getting the grades. But that I mean that's like if you want to put in the effort, a you're gonna learn the material better than you would in any other structure, and b yeah you're gonna get the grade. Like I respect like I respect that. Yeah, the people who are willing to work hard to get that should deserve that. I mean like that's what should be rewarded is yeah I mean hard if, work and improvement. You know yeah yeah I, I mean hundred percent. Yeah, that that professor is phenomenal. Um, Michael Bell at Western Washington University. Michael Bell, Western Washington. And if anyone's at Western Washington, <laughs> make sure <laughs> make sure you get a class. Take his class. Yeah. That's um, why. Yeah. The reason why I was left Western was because um, I finally figured out what I wanted to study. And so then when I decided that, I wanted to do it to the best possible ability. And like, Western's a great school, but... Um, you know, because it doesn't have those, that huge graduate sector, I guess. It's, you know, it's still like, I don't like, I know, I remember like Forbes, just not that we should pay that much attention to college trainings. I really don't believe in that. But just to give like an example. Like, uh, so arbitrary in my opinion, but anyway. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not even going to, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, we could skip good, It's that. a pretty good school is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, it, it wasn't as diverse as I would like it to be. And there wasn't a huge international student body. And so, yeah, it's something about Berkeley that's been amazing so far. Mm. So, but yeah, Western's a great school. Just, um, yeah, those were the two detractors for me. Gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, how much, how much time do we have? 
I mean, we're we're not running. So let's see. So the the podcast. I'm on Anchor, which is the podcast app, which is going up in. You record in 60 minute intervals, so we're at 28. But we've been talking for like two hours at this point. So if you want to wrap up, that's cool. And if you want to keep going, that's cool too. Um, I mean, do you have any? I mean, I'd be happy to finish this last 30 minutes if, if you have stuff. Yeah, I, I, I always could, but. Yeah, let, let's kill the 30 minutes and post the whole thing. Dude, I. I can talk all day. That, I mean, that's the big motivation for me doing this is, it's crazy. There, I mean, one motivation is, so this, this is a framework shift I've had. It's like, I, I've kind of been someone who shies away from attention. Like, I don't really like to be noticed, like, in a, in a way, you know what I mean? Like, not, yeah. like, a lot of people seek out attention, and naturally I don't. But more and more, I think, like, in terms of being successful, it's really important to have it. So, like, like in the modern digital age, I don't know if I talked about this on yesterday's podcast, but if I didn't, I came close to it. I, I think more and more, getting to where you want to be is about people being aware of you and knowing you have a certain set of skills. And I think, like, getting attention on the internet is a way to do that. So, like, that's a, I mean, that's a big motivation for doing this podcast. But, like obviously it's it's also the love like i fucking love talking about things yeah i that's awesome yeah, yeah. i mean i do too obviously as, as you probably know yep. um it's so there's great conversations we have you know yeah there's so much ideas that are worth spreading and i love listening to podcasts i do too um, for so many reasons but best reason is to learn and get new perspectives yep. that I wouldn't otherwise have had. Like, yeah, so much of my thinking is based off of information I learned from podcasts. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. So I think about this all the time, like, um, just the access to information we have today, like, how much different would you think if this information wasn't so accessible? Like, I just feel like I understand oh, the I world in so much better of a way because of the technology we have. Yeah, I love, I remember we had a conversation at one point about, uh, social media or something. I love Yeah, I remember that. About how social media just kind of like uh, furthers or um, basically, ah, fuck, what's the word? Um, it makes human nature stronger, I guess. Yeah, it, it, it amplifies it. Amplifies it, that's a perfect word, yeah. Um, those who want to create and, you know, interact and engage with world events can do so at yep. new heights. But those who, and, and those who, I don't want to put judgment on it, who, you know, prefer to spend time, you know, just kind of playing game or whatever. I don't really know. I'm not really, like, they can't, I guess. Like, I would call it wasting time. Like, I think. Yeah, I just, I would stray away from that. You don't want to judge. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, if, if you enjoy it, that's cool. Like, here's, yeah. here's the thing. Here's, here's where it becomes wasting time. When people complain about social media and yet they still use it, then all they're doing is wasting minutes and hours they have on this planet. Like, if you don't like what you're doing on social media, either change who you're following or delete it. Like, I don't, I don't think it, it, there's anything more to it than that. Yeah, the best way to change the world is to change yourself. That's for yeah. sure. But yeah, there's nothing – like, a lot of people will say what's inherently bad about social media, and I just don't believe in that at all. Yeah, I think that's a very strong, very strong perspective. I, I really, I find myself agreeing with that a lot. Um, yeah, it amplifies human behavior. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's just like whatever you want to put into the spotlight or whatever you want to consume. Like, 
whatever whatever feedback you want to give to other people like whether you want to boost people up tear them down or just like have conversation with them whatever you want to do it's just you can interact with people or take in information at a scale that's massive and you can just do it so easily that it's just like whatever whatever type of person you are you can find a way to accommodate it on social media yeah but i do think that maybe it's a it's good to like for people to think about the dark sides too just so that maybe if they want to use social media in a better way for themselves like maybe a conversation around the negative effects can help people understand how social media is affecting them and then change their behavior from yeah them. i mean I'm- i think that's they think that's a worthy conversation to have. I'm all for education and understanding. Like, yeah, there's people there's people who, like, become, like, like-seekers, I guess, and they post things just based off what the algorithm is, like, kind of promoting, I guess, and they don't, like, do it for what they care about. Or, like, they go on there and the Explore page is made in a certain way to where it gains their attention, but then after 15 minutes they're kind of bored of it, but they don't want to go off it. Like, but I, like... I think it's as simple as like, if, if you don't have a positive experience with something, you can just stop doing it. Like if you go on social media and like you feel these things going on, then just... But do, you think, do you think there's like a sense of some sort of like addiction? Like you get some sort of like you know, dopamine rush when you get likes and uh, you know, when you don't have that, you have some sort of you know, very minor... You know, like withdrawals or something like that and you kind of like need you know, don't you think that like patterns of addiction also kind of play because like when that started to happen then it's very hard to just be like all right this isn't good i'm gonna stop now like it's it gets more complicated and um, difficult for that a, a little bit so i, I want to preface this like there's a lot of things that i say that later on i change my mind on with good convincing and like this is one i'm not that firm on but I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer in, in like willpower. Like if you want to do something, you do it. And then if you don't, you can make whatever excuses you want, but it's that simple. Like if there's not, if there's not something physical, like stopping you, like, like if you do, if you do meth or something and there's this insane physical withdrawal that could kill you, that's a different story. But like, if you get a little dopamine rush from Instagram and you enjoy it and you stop doing it. Like you leave Instagram because you feel like it's negative for you and you have just like this small craving to get the likes again or whatever, like lack of dopamine from what you were getting before, you know, if, if you can't power through that, then like that's on you, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not comparable to hard drugs. Um, it's certainly not, you say, or it is? Certainly not. Yeah, no. I mean, it's not even comparable to like even things that are less like yeah i, I think yeah. it'd be I easier just, to I like think, i just don't think the fact that it's not comparable to hard drugs I, I don't i don't think that should well what i'm saying i don't i don't think there's any like actual strong withdrawal like here's the thing people do things because they like it so if you went on instagram and you got no dopamine rush then no one would be there like the things you do are because chemicals in your brain release pleasure so if you're legitimately getting a good experience out of Instagram and it's consistently like making you happy and you're getting that chemical reaction, then like, then great. That's awesome. Stay on Instagram and keep doing what you're doing. But it's like, if there's a day where like maybe before you got that dopamine rush and now you don't feel good about being on Instagram, then delete it. And like, I, I usually yeah, I mean, see, I'd advocate for the same thing. I really would. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I usually see gray area, but like for me, 
at least the way I think about it today, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Like, I don't think, I don't think it's a, like, going out and picking up a basketball for some people creates dopamine. I don't, I don't think Instagram is stronger or weaker than that is. Yeah. I, it's just more accessible. I mean, you know, I don't really use social media, so, like, I don't really know, but. Right. Um, I think, like, from stories I hear, like, sometimes maybe people desire some certain. Validation. Yeah, well, yeah, some sort of validation, but they they want they want to improve their profile or whatever, or they you know, or maybe that's they just prefer, but but that's a, comparativity, but also like it kind of just goes back to what you said, it just kind of amplifies. Yeah, it just amplifies what they already, what they already feel. If you're insecure and you want to go on Instagram and gain security by doing whatever you want to do, that's not an Instagram problem. That's a you problem. And Instagram isn't creating that problem. It's just giving you an outlet that you can be obsessive over it with. But that's true for anything new in society, like. You know, it, it opens up new ways to benefit from and it opens up new ways for people with certain personalities to worsen their lives with it. And it's like it's just self-awareness. Like if you if you can recognize that you're in these destructive paths, you have to get out of it. But if not, like that's just the people's nature playing out in an area where it can be amplified. But it's not like I don't think it's this evil that comes with social media. Like I just don't see it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much do agree with you. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I think I'll have Keaton on here, and we'll talk about this, because I, I don't know where he stands today, but we kind of, we talked about this on the drive back from San Francisco, and that was, I mean, that was a good conversation. That was like, a fantastic conversation. That was fun. Like, yeah. I don't know how much, I I don't think I really moved on that one, though. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, like, yeah. Keaton's obviously another person who'd be fantastic for this podcast. Oh yeah, he'll be. I mean, I don't, I don't know what his schedule looks like right now, but I think he'll be on here, so that would be fun. That's cool. I'm looking forward to listening to these. But, yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I mean, hope I, they're good. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I, I, I think they will be. But um, I don't know if other people like him. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll let, we'll let the market decide. Yeah. Who knows? Oh, real, real quick. If I'm gonna put this on my Instagram again, so if you're listening. One, if you made it over two hours in, fuck yeah, thank you. And two, like, give me feedback if it's good, if it's bad. Like, honestly, I I kind of feel like I'm really okay with negative judgment these days because I feel like if I'm I'm trying to expand my presence online a little more, so like, I need yes, to fucking get used to it. So like, if you have any judgment, whether it be really good, really bad, how I can improve, literally anything, like send it to me. I would, I would actually really appreciate anything. Yeah. And, and you're, and you're a beast for making it over two hours. Yeah, Thank I mean, you. honestly, pretty surprised how many. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. That's another reason I'm saying this is like, if you, if you made it over two hours, let me know because like people are hitting me up and saying, yeah, I listen to this. Like, let me know if you really made it. Yeah, I mean, I listen to Joe Rogan's three-hour podcast, but... I do, too. I don't... I mean, I think that's the the thing that's going to be interesting. It's like, can I be as interesting as Joe Rogan? Like, we'll see. I feel like the beginning of this podcast, at least, like, I don't know, I wasn't really expecting to go such in depth into, like, an academic subject. I was like, well, I have to, like, think real quick, so it's kind of hard. I don't know. I I hope it didn't, but... who knows? <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like, dude, we're we're gonna do more of these too. So yeah, it's I don't know. It, I I hope. It's I, yeah, it's I think, and I plan on making a lot. I think it's just gonna be a whole fun thing, and each one's gonna be better than the last. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Anyone listening, hit me up. Let me know what you think. Yeah, but here's another aspect of social media I just want to get your perspective. Yeah, on. yeah. Um, 
as far as the amount of information that's available, the amount of disinformation that's available as well. Like one example, like it's not even intentional sometimes. Like uh, with the Amazon fires, the, you know, the fires in the Amazon. You know, celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, like I have a pretty good opinion of, and like others, like uh, they posted like pictures of the Amazon forest and fire there from like 20 years ago. And they're like, hey, look, the Amazon's <laughs> burning. And I, I'm assuming it's not intentional. It's just kind of like an accident. Yeah, but, probably. Uh, you know, there's just been a lot of misinformation about that. Like, the Amazon forest fires are very serious and dangerous, yeah. but also it's, like, it's not that more extreme than what's been going on the last 10 years. So, like, why is it all of a sudden a big deal now? You know, like, just... why are metal straws such a big thing now when, honestly, like, the effect that they have, like, sure, it's something. So small, dude, so small. You know, if, it's, you're, it's... If, you, if you're using a metal straw and then somehow think you're global, like, effect on the environment is somehow negated like that's just not true yeah but, i like you went you went are you still vegan by the way well, i'm vegetarian i've never been vegan. vegetarian yeah i I'm mean trying, uh, it's a transition to be vegan ideally i'll get there okay see that i don't know if people realize that's way more of an environmental impact than fucking straws but also like i always find it funny i, I can't remember where i read this but it was like like there was some fucking environmental convention thing that like world leaders and CEOs and powerful people went to like whatever like to quote like improve the environment and ah, fuck where did I read this but they all they all took their like fucking private jets there and wasted all this gas and like yeah it's just unbelievable like shit like that where it's like yeah I think I think the the metal straw things like that like if you I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, do you should do things to help the environment, but man, like, if you want to make a small change in your life, the metal straw one is probably not the place to start. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I do good, but hey, I mean, it's better than plastic. It's better than. I mean, it's an improvement. So I guess on the like, power to you. Just don't, 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 don't be the person that shoves it in other people's face. Like, look at me. Like, I don't use plastic straws. When it's like, all right, like. I don't know. What do you What do you think would be a better way to like make a bigger difference? Because um, you know this shit better than me. I'm kind of spitballing. I mean, shoot. There's so many things. I mean, you think about, about fast fashion. You think about you yeah. Know, there's one. Yeah. A huge one. You know, that's that's the one I heard. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. That's that's the one that I heard someone talking about. Was like people go out and they're like brand new fucking Gucci shoes or whatever BS that they spent a ton of money on that like. Because the fashion industry is brutal for the environment. They're buying all new clothes, expensive shit. And then they're, like, on social media talking about their fucking metal straws. Like, get out of here. Like, anyway. Yeah, that's terrible. But, yeah, no, I mean, think about maybe supporting thrift stores or um, environmentally friendly uh, retailers. You can find those online. You can just look them up. But, uh, you know, you'll have to pay a little bit more money, at least at the environmentally friendly retailers. You don't have to go to thrift stores. That's the beauty of that. Yeah, what what I would also recommend, I want to shout this out for everyone, there's a lot of good apps for buying used clothes, and I'm getting pretty involved in them because I'm trying to sell, but like, the one I really like is Depop, and it's, it would seem like it's mostly girl stuff, but there's a lot of guy stuff on it, and like, if you go on there, it's all used clothes, and it's all in like pretty good condition, and you can go on and search like, whatever you're looking for and find it, and it's like, man, if you want, if you want to support the environment and save money start moving towards buying your clothes online they provide measurements for how it fits they give you the size whatever 
Buy your clothes used online but in con- good condition. Save some money and help the environment. And chill with the fucking metal straws. <laughs> yeah. Are the online thrift stores cheaper than the in-person thrift stores? It depends. You can – see, here's the thing. It, it's all about information and opportunity, right? So it's like if you go to an in-person thrift store, there's a few hundred items there. If you want an yeah. online – on, if you do it online, you got millions of options. So like, if, if you want to put in the time, you can you can get shit dirt cheap. Like that's my entire thing right yeah. now is like, I'm putting in the time to find shoes for like, way below what they're worth and just buying them, getting them shipped to my house, putting yeah. them on eBay, turn around selling them for more and shipping them back out. And like, so cool. if you just wanted yeah. to do that for your own fashion, like you could find some nice shit cheap. Like, just put in the time. Yeah, I mean I purchase most of my things from in-person thrift stores now. Um, yeah. I'm not huge on fashion, but I know a lot of people do like the kind of like the fun of it, like going and seeing what you can find of the in-person thrift store. Like there's some sort of like novelty or fun to it too. So yeah, I know that's a real thing for people who like clothes. Sure. But, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to support the environment. Um, another one, I mean like just reducing maybe the amount of meat you eat, you know, you don't have to completely cut it out. But so so just for people so people know like why is meat bad for the environment because i don't know if that's a natural like connection yeah. that people make yeah so i guess basically the amount of land and energy that's used to produce meat is just incredible like the amount of food that you need to produce for a cow to then eat for then you eat the cow like you can just completely cut that whole chain of energy and food production and also like um you know the fucking industries uh it's just it's just gross like how much energy they put and land they put on uh producing you know the food you eat if you if you if you become like vegetarian or don't eat meat then you get to if you support you know these kind of businesses that don't produce meat then you're cutting out of the equation this huge swath of like energy and water so much water is used to like for a cow like mm. a cow will eat so much more food than you think about all the energy and you know this but the, the big thing is in the magnitude of it like multiply it by thousands and thousands you know like yeah oh my god you can cut that all out um but you know I mean, that's it's also like i mean i i also that's the environmental aspect of it i guess right well, we'll stick there since that's what we're talking about. But I think there's more reasons as well. But well, what do you, if you want to pivot, like, what do you think about the health side of it? Because I've read mixed things about how healthy I, it is to cut. Meat. I've read mixed things too. Um, I really have. I mean, if you're gonna not eat meat and then just like eat ramen instead, then obviously it's not very good. Yeah, right. But if you're gonna have like lentils and a lot of nuts and you know good vegetables, you know potatoes, you know get your protein through you know you know the legumes like lentils, other beans, other stuff like that. Um, you know, that you could you can you can do well, but yeah. you have to know what you're doing, and you're also gonna have to pay more. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to yeah. pay more. Yeah. But um, I think when you're affluent, then maybe that provides a little bit more responsibility because people who aren't don't have that ability. But you know, I, I would just advocate for reduction. You know, yeah, like me, go for it, and just if you also like the environment, then maybe consider reducing from time to time. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Hopefully, I mean. We'll see. I don't. I don't know what type of people are listening to this, but um, I you know I I still haven't really came around on that yet. I'm pretty much in my regular eating habits, but like yeah, I do hear you. Like I, of the many things that I might be wrong about, maybe I should be eating less meat, and maybe that's something I eventually do. But like, 
I mean, should or shouldn't. It's just like, you know, yeah. it's an individual choice. Right, um, right. I mean, I respect I, it. Yeah, I honestly didn't really love that. I didn't really like love meat that much, so it hasn't been that hard. It makes it easier. Trying to transition to vegan is, is a lot harder, so still in the process of doing that. Okay. But, um, you know, and also, yeah, that's a good that's a good advice to you. Like, don't have to, like, cut it off the next day. Like, also for me, like, if I'm, if I'm like, at a family dinner or something, you know, like, I've served, like, you know, this meat, like, it's, it's fine. Like, for me, personally, I'm going to be like, okay. Like, I, I, I know some people aren't, and that's cool, too. It's like, whatever you want. It's just personal, I guess. Yeah. I guess it's just good to think about how you want to do it individually. Yeah, well, know? when you know why you're doing something, it makes it a lot easier to decide exactly. on, like, make choices. Exactly. Like, for me, it's about it's about money. Like, I just don't want my money supporting meat industries. Okay. Really? So it's not the environmental part of it. Well, it is the environmental part of it, because, like, I don't want my money going to support meat okay. industries. You know what? I want to I want to pivot a little bit and build on that. So yeah. I, I told you a bit ago that I was um, interested in Shopify for investing the, the stock. Yeah. And this is related. I swear to God. Just just bear with me for a sec. So uh-huh. I've, I've listened to two podcasts with their CEO, which I also talked about yesterday because like, dude, they were fucking good. Like I, I finished listening to those and like had different perspectives on all kinds of things. But um, one of the things he was saying was that um. Every dollar you send or spend is like a vote. Like what – there's a democracy in the yes. sense of what you choose to buy. And I think this yes. is a really – like now I've internalized that more. Like I, yeah. I didn't really understand it as much. Now I get it. Now I get it. Yes. Your, your strongest influence on politics will be how you spend your money. It's crazy. It's voting with your wallet 100%. That's the biggest thing. And you know, you look around Encinitas and you'll see all these vegan restaurants – um, and you, maybe you go into like a couple markets and you're like vegan cheese. Like, how did that happen? It's not yeah. just because the retailers all of a sudden are like, yeah, let's be vegan. No, it's because consumers decided that they weren't going to pay their money to support meat industries. And what happens? Businesses yeah. come to. They uh, have to adjust to what people want to spend their money on. They have to come provide the consumer what they want. The consumer has so much more power than they think. Voting with your wallet is the best way to affect change, guaranteed. Um, yeah, that's why that's you know that's why there's more vegan places in NCS because consumers refuse to do otherwise. Businesses see the profit opportunity, and uh, there you go. Um, plant power is killing it off of that. Your your old company. Yeah, plant power right, works fantastic. It's good food. Um, I mean, they're really expensive right now, but ideally, once you know other businesses see this vegan fast food restaurant killing it profit wise, there's going to be more that come. All of a sudden, you get competition. You're going to bring the price down. And all of a sudden, the less affluent people who weren't have the access to this vegan food will be able to. So that's why I think it's a responsibility for affluent people with money, if they so choose, you know, to care about the environment um, enough, I guess, to right. support these plant-based operations because it saves the environment and reduces the barriers to people with less money to be able to, uh, you know, take part in that as well. So, right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. It's yeah. Huge point because you're not honestly like your vote doesn't matter that much. What matters the most yeah. is the information that you disseminate to other people, like the conversations that you have. That's why it's part and, of the reason I'm doing this too. Exactly, and the way you spend your money. Those two things: um, sharing your perspective and paying your money the way you want your money. Yep. That's the best way for for you personally, individually too. Yep. Affect change. Real, um, real quick, real quick. Nine minute warning. We got nine minutes left in the, yeah. the recording. Uh, this cool, is funny. Cool. This is funny because 
yesterday, me and Leo did the first hour, and it was like, like you know, we went through the first hour, but then the second hour just fucking flew. I felt like I felt like that today too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like I don't know like the first hour, or I feel like the second hour maybe better than the first. I, I, I felt that I, yesterday too. Dude, I finished the one yesterday and was like, God, the second hour was so much better. Yeah. But I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I. I'll listen to it again. I think I think the beginning was, but that's how it kind of all should be, I guess. Yeah, you kind of have to get into it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. So real quick, in the last eight minutes, is there anywhere else where you feel like? you use your dollar like is there anywhere else specifically that you feel like you're spending in a way to support a certain cause so like yeah other than fashion or food yeah other than like fashion that's, and food that's, that's what that's what places where i spend my money so, so that's pretty much um, it I those mean, are the big ones at least yeah there's also like um yeah those are the big ones that's that's where I spend. i'm trying to think where else i spend my money like uh, living arrangements i guess yeah it's like, kind of yeah. The less land, the better. <laughs> uh, you know, transportation. Transportation's a big one. Forgot about that. Um, electric electric vehicles, fantastic. Teslas are sick too. Like if yeah, I if Tesla's I had some money, too. I'd get a I'd get a nice. See, I, I'm not a big spender on cars, but I'd get myself the Model Three, like the cheapest model, and fucking whip that. Like I'd I'd feel good about that. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Public transportation is good too. Bikes, that's a good investment. You know, transportation is a big one as well. Yeah. This is this is such a random connection. Uh, I don't even know if I want to go here. It's so off task. But when you said bikes, like, dude, so I, you know, I umpire. Right? For anyone listening who doesn't know, I used to umpire a lot of baseball games. Like I still do. But um, there's this summer. There's this guy I was working with, and he fucking had no cell phone, and he rolled up to every game on his bike. He had no teeth. He rolled up with a jacket on in, like, 90-degree weather, and it was just – it was it was strange. Like, we're just going to zip right through this because we don't have much time, but I always tell that story. Like, it's it was so funny. That's strange. It was weird. And he, I mean, he had no teeth, and, like, he had to go behind the plate and call balls and strikes, and it was just – dude, the whole thing was hilarious. That's funny. Strange stuff happens in the world. It's yeah, crazy. every once in a while there's some shit that, that happens and you're just like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> Yeah. That's something I love about Berkeley so far. It's just so multicultural. Um, and so, like, different classes of people, different races of people, different everything. Just all kind of in this city. And it's, like, really beautiful because like, it's a pretty... You feel like you've learned a lot from that already? Yeah, like, I really have. Like, I, I walk around... Like, I'll pass, like, a Pakistani vegan restaurant, and I'll get to People's Park, which is, like, a park that, like, where homeless people can just hang out, live, sleep together. Like, it's kind of a community. And then, like, I'll pass, like, the uh, Research Institute on Labor and Employment or something like that, you know? And, you know, through the, like, I'll pass, like, yeah, it's just all kind of, like, there's no divisions. It's all together. And that's just beautiful, you know? Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, like, a whole different thing. I yeah, like, Carlsbad like, is very different. Yeah. It's very, like, yeah, Bresti Ranch, and you have, you know, other parts of town. Um, it's very isolated, and when you're not isolated and connected with a broader community, and you walk by, you know, homeless people every day, you start to understand their humanity and realize that, you know, they're, they're cool, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's important, man. Um, the biggest thing about 
the, the most psychological stress that I've at least heard people talk about um, for homeless people is like just being neglected. When people walk by the street and they say something like, and you don't even respond or look at them, yeah. this takes a huge psychological toll. So whenever I walk by someone who's like down in the rock the homeless, like I, I at least try to respond and be like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't help out. You know, look at them in the eyes, you know, just yeah. humanity. Decency. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just gross sometimes how inhumanely people treat each other. It's like they forget. It's they forget. Yeah. That, you know, we're all, we're all human. So, yeah, that, that's a big thing too. Just, yeah, also like I've learned that too. It's just like people who work at like hotels, like they're doing like laundry and stuff like that. Like it's just hard sometimes when rich people walk by and they don't even acknowledge their presence, you know? Yeah. So that's something too, just like personal acknowledgement. I think that's, that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I can say I've definitely done that. Like just completely ignore. Yeah. I used to do that all the time too. Yeah. <sighs> it was easier that way. Or maybe I was, had some knee jerk reaction. Well, it's also like, I mean, sometimes it feels like there could be some aggression there though. Do you feel that at all? Like, I remember when we were in San Francisco, there was that one guy who fucking jumped out at us and was like, you bitch ass, and he fucking jumped out. Like, Yeah. Like, yeah. that's a, like... A, I mean, 95% of people aren't like that. No, 99% of people aren't like okay. that. You know, it's like, you're, you're also, you also walk by, like, a, a rich asshole in his, in his, you know, car, like, flipping you off, like... Yeah, no, it's... There's aggression on both sides. So, like, to, like, you know, it'll have... You know, it's just, like... But to then take that and, like, expand that to be representative or anything close to that of our population, I think that's that's, that's incorrect to do. So, and, you know, I think you make your own determinations on that. But... Yeah. uh, That's what I found, you know. People are are cool. I remember this one specific time not to like make myself seem i'm very i have a lot of i'm not that great but uh, <laughs> uh, uh there is this one homeless guy he's he's down his luck he's like we're sitting at a bus stop together like we're sitting next to each other and he's like oh you have any money i was like oh no i like sitting next to each other and i was kind of hungry so i went over to like the convenience store i bought like a bar um and i bought well i bought two bars like one for him one for me but then also you know got the change so i gave him the bar gave him the change and he's like oh thanks and then like Hey, two minute warning. Came. Sorry, two two minutes left. All right. When my bus came, he gave me all the money back, and he was like, "I don't want this." And I was like, "Oh." So, you know, he was super That's cool. Kind. Yeah, it's just like things like that. When you interact with people who you may otherwise not, like you'll be surprised about the beauty or the humanity you'll, you'll find, and uh, I think that's powerful. I think that's good. Yeah. That's cool. I think um, that's a good one to wrap up on. We're coming up on the last minute. All right, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed this. This was fun. This I don't was know cool. If it's good or not, but <laughs> dude, I, I was to you. yeah, no, it was fun. I, it's funny how the conversation goes different ways when you have something recording, and it, it's also funny because we tried it the one time and it just didn't work, and now it's like, it was just so natural. Like, I, it was fun. I, I do really hope that these do well, and um, yeah, dude, I mean, we'll do this again. Yeah, I'd love to come on again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so many things I could talk about. I know, dude. I, we we could have we could have gone for five hours for for the sake of anyone who decides to listen. We'll cut it off here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds sounds good. All right, man. Well, um, good luck at Berkeley, and dude, I mean, hopefully in a week or two, I'll settle in at Santa Barbara, and we can do another one. Yeah, 
Yeah, sounds great. All right. Cool. Sounds good. Sounds Thanks good. Me, All right, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks for thanks for talking. Awesome. All right, that's the end of episode two of the Think Tank. Again, if you have any opinions, anything you want to let me know, like what you thought of this episode, let me know. Shoot it over DM on Instagram, wherever you can reach me. Um, otherwise, if you enjoyed it, just share this with one person. Like I'd appreciate that a lot. Just really, I just love to talk about stuff. So anything that you can do to support this, I'd appreciate it.